Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 177th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that is sick of painting like a servant already. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody, and good evening, James. How are you on this overcast but otherwise pleasant afternoon? I'm still trying to recover from the very ageist commentary I got on the basketball court last night. Oh, yeah? What's that? Uh, Since we got back from Europe... uh, been playing a lot of three on three. Got a little fire ignited in me when we uh, dominated the court over in the park there in Istanbul. And uh, last night I was playing with some like I guess high school all star players mm. who expected me to not be able to play the game because uh, my hair is gray. And after I had scored on them a couple times, I had one kid like grab me and go like, "Can I just like um uh, you know like I, I don't mean to offend you, but how old are you?" <laughs> and I was like, and I was like forty two, and he's like. He looks at his friend. He's like forty two, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and he's like, "Wow, you're you're doing really good for forty two. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> We've got. <laughs> it's like, let me just get out of my walker here and see if I got all my vitamins from the nurse. I know, I know. I, we've got. You know, I work in the medical field, and uh, I catch some of these nurses who are like twenty three, and they're like, they talk about thirty, like they're gonna, like they're dead at that age, and I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I, I pretty much thought life was over at 32 when I was 22. Well, I'm 34 and I still think that, but <laughs> yeah, there's this, you know, there's this great, this really popular tweet from years ago where this guy's on Twitter and he's like, I was at the gym. He's like, there's nothing more humbling than playing pickup ball at the gym. And there's this like 45 year old dad wearing sport, you know, huge bulky sport glasses and like the track shorts and just a hundred percent like dad playing basketball who was just is no flash but has just been training the fundamentals for 30 years who's just like flat foot shooting three pointers from anywhere on the court and he's like just getting destroyed by these like 55 year old dads who have like don't even know who lebron james is but are just sinking every shot and he's like god damn that was it was humbling yeah we had one of those guys on the court last night too who's one of these kind of like toxic dads who was talking down to his son the whole time even though his son was the best guy in the court mm. and and the dad was talking a lot of trash, very <laughs> arrogant, but he also was serving it up like he could he could back it up every shot he made landed. Wow. And it was just like he, he never drove, didn't really have good movement. I wouldn't say he was playing the best defense, but when when you if you put the sh- like gave him the ball anywhere close to the paint, he just spin hook bank shot, little jumper flat-footed to no problem well, guys just dropping them i would imagine that if you're you know if you've been playing basketball for 30 years i mean you know, just you're just so comfortable with taking those shots i mean that's a little that's a lot of reps right like it's a lot of reps over 30 years this guy had clearly put in the time and he's a natural talent i'm yeah. sure um that worked for his game and he's probably never stopped playing so yeah impressive well there you go if you guys just keep buying and selling magic cards for 30 years You'll be able to flat foot specs. I don't know how to finish that analogy. <laughs> I mean, I think I think that's I think that for MTG Finance, two to three years gets you into your sweet spot. I did pretty poorly in my first year, and you, that's the year where you make a lot. You're trying to be original, 
And then you start to slowly transition, uh, accepting that other people know better. And and when you become humble and accept that you're supposed to be following someone else's lead, that's where you're going to start to make some money. And then you get into the period where you know enough, you've been around long enough that you can start to detect the bullshit in other people's MTG finance content. And that's when you really come into your own. Yeah, I, could, I would say two or three years is probably enough to where you're probably in the black for the year. Uh, and you're a little bit better at not getting nailed by certain stuff. But you figure rotation's two years, right? Like from a set releasing to a set rotating is two years if we're talking about a fall set. So I don't even think two years, two to three years is that long in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, granted, I've been at this since Zendikar, like the actual like buying and selling of cards. So feel old when it, in that regard now. But I would say you're probably at five, four to five years before you really have found your you have started to really understand the market and be like oh yeah i've seen enough standard rotations to see how this one is going to work or like i've seen the format shift and three times already like i can kind of get a feel for how this metagame change is happening the mgg price pro trader discord has collected some fairly talented financiers and by and large these are people that have been doing this for at least five plus years yeah, like the people that are really killing it. Those of us that are in the tens of thousands of dollars a year with like really strong ROI, um, those are people that have been around for a while. Yeah, and I, I'm not I'm not cracking on anybody, but I have definitely seen some people in the Discord who are clearly a little greener on the earth. <laughs> um, and I mean that's, and that's just, fine. What say again? And that's fine, right? Oh, like we, yeah. we, we our our advice to people that are just starting out: keep it keep it simple, keep it you know minimal. Don't get into too many specs. Keep your inventory really easily managed and spend most of your time researching. Right. Very little time spending money. And then as you start to turn the corner on knowledge, then you can ramp up your spend. Yeah. Follow the lead of people who clearly know what they're doing. But uh, it's not it's not to give them a hard time. I understand, you know, um, how that goes. It's just uh, even still, you get people who are who are getting into the space now that don't quite have a the most firm footing. Um, I guess hum- humility will will pay you well here. In our, I mean, really, it. it I, I I've kind of stopped now just because I've been too busy, and I haven't made the. T- I shouldn't even say I've been too busy. I just haven't made the time for it. But I was reading articles. I was consuming all the finance content I could for years and years and years. I only stopped that probably two years ago. Um, and I know there was another writer who commented that, oh, I don't read such and such because, you know, he's he's dumb and I know as much as he does. And I said, well, you know, that might be true. I'm not, not going to argue that point one or the other. But if you're reading the work by other people who are in the field, you are seeing some of the lines of thinking people are taking. Maybe you'll get some good ideas out of it. You'll go, oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe you'll see some terrible lines of thought and go, oh, that's that's dumb. I should be aware of that and like keep away from it. Or, well, you know, you see what other people are consuming, so you know kind of where the where the public interest is. So you're, even if you feel like you know more than other people, it's still worth your time to be reading the content that's out there and consuming it because it will, um, you know, it kind of gives you a, a broader sense of the the space. Well, not, not the least reason of which is that your, you know, other people's mistakes may open doors of opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. you know, if somebody sets off a, a hype spike, you might get a chance to settle into that. If you're not a, not aware of the, 
you know, the rising tension that's going to lead to that process, then you may you may miss your window of opportunity to get out. Yeah. And I mean, a perfect example here is the number one card in segment one. Spoiler alert, we have a segment one um, is exactly the type of card that you could have been reading somebody else's article and saw a mention of it and went, wait a minute. He didn't spend any time on that, but that actually sounds good. And then went and went and looked it up and went, oh, I would never even thought of that. But this other guy mentioned it and I'm jumping on it now before other people do. And, you know, it would have worked out well for you, which I'm positive I have done in the past. Um, but but a lot of times, a lot of times, if you've got your network built out and you get your little store, little URLs online that not everybody knows to traffic or you're dealing with you got partners in Europe or Japan or whatever, you can be late to the party and still do well. Mm-hmm. Um, those those ga- opportunity gaps tend to last for a little while um, in a lot of cases. So, uh, yeah, uh, good well, to be on the ball. Yeah, yeah, it, pay, it pays to be uh, aware of what everyone else is doing. All right, so let me tell you that our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, uh, and hopefully not get embarrassed by me, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. What is on the agenda this week, my friend? Segment one, top movers, cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, cards to watch. This is a uh, a bounty, if I've ever seen one before. Possibly a record for most picks in a week. Um, it might be. Segment three, a metagame week in review. Uh, this is a modern league from just today, in fact. And segment four, topic of the week, uh, I guess we're talking about Magic Omega, which is not a real product, but the uh, the brainchild of James here, just explore a possible product. Um, kind of worth thinking about just from the, the brain exercises, I suppose. Um, we'll start off here. First card of the week is Force of Negation out of Modern Horizons, which you will see several of in the next couple cards. Um, a small move from 37 to 45, so only about 20% gain, but clearly has been popular lately, um, really building its way in as into modern as a staple. I'm sure we're going to keep seeing it show up. It's not like Force. You know, we're not seeing that level of ubiquity, but it's definitely a popular tool for plenty of strategies, especially out of the board. And foils are already over $200, so clearly somebody wants to be playing with this. Yeah, I mean, this isn't you know, a huge amount of movement, but it's worth keeping your eye on this card because uh, many of us are going to be choosing exits. Those of us who popped uh, Modern Horizon boxes and are holding a variety of these rares and mythics are looking at the point where we can, uh, you know, exit on four or five key cards from a box and then go ahead and rebuy a box. I mean, if you get if you get a run and a six and a force of negation, you're already more than halfway to getting another $180 box. So doesn't take much to get a rebuy here and that is a pretty exciting situation that you don't see every day that is are you so you're selling all the all the singles you popped out of your boxes i'm not like anything that i think has already hit a local peak i'm willing to sell so i've been selling ren and six like a few copies i had on hand um been selling a couple of force negations i sold some uh, I think a couple of Yawgmoths last week, and 
I'm certainly willing to sell some of the more expensive foils that I'm holding that I picked up early. Like I picked up some like Russian foil lava darts and just had a uh, Russian foil Aria of Flame show up today at $17 where the lowest price copy on eBay is 90. So that kind of stuff, you know, when there's a really sexy margin in a very short period of time, happy to just, you know, as I said, go ahead and target a rebuy, especially since we're going to be rebooking more Russian boxes shortly. And those are just insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, if $180 English boxes are exciting, then $210, $220 Russian boxes are even more exciting. They are juicy. I've still got mine sitting there. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get paid on these because I am too lazy to actually sell them rather than because I'm clever. <laughs> I'm going to pop at least a few boxes this weekend on stream. So folks can look out probably Friday or Saturday night this weekend. I will be doing a fairly low quality uh, Twitch stream to see if we can open something especially amazing. Everyone can live vicariously. Uh, All right. What's our next card? Well, speaking of Renin 6, foils have just absolutely taken off. They were already kind of crazy at 230. Now you're seeing $300 plus copies. So in theory, 30 to 40% additional gains. And this is the back on the back of um, it showing up fairly consistently in both legacy and modern 5.0 lists, including some pretty cool lists uh, in legacy and more to the point, Jun seems to be deliberating as to whether or not it is going to standardize on a full four of copies in, in the in the main. I know like people like Reed Duke aren't running it uh, at that level, but some of the other top eight finishers in the recent weeks have been. And uh, that has driven this card well into the stratosphere. Yeah, this is really wildly popular. Um, you know, everyone wondered if this was going to be a good two mana planeswalker, and it certainly looked like it coming out of the gate. But I don't think anyone predicted it being this popular, right? Like nobody had this pegged for uh, you know tier one modern staple that was going to end up looking like another Liliana the Veil. I love what's happening with this card and several others from Modern Horizons. It's exactly the scenario that we predicted where people were going to underestimate these cards. Folks started calling it EDH Masters. We said, hold on, there's a lot of modern value here. Don't give up yet. And folks backed off the set way too fast, so not enough of it got opened. And so even though it is in theory printed demand, we are seeing things go through the roof because there there are boxes available through distributors, but there aren't that many stores uh, ordering and opening them. Yeah. Um, you know, there there had keep in mind that an LGS can can get in on this action simply by put, being aggressive with their buy lists on these cards. You know, if Ren and Six Foils hit that high, they can offer, you know, 150, 200, somebody cracks one in a local draft, they'll dump it on them and then they'll flip it for an extra hundred bucks and they're doing just fine. Less less labor overall in cracking boxes, so a lot of stores will go that route. I like that we. Uh, you're right. We definitely predicted how modern horizons would play out, and that it was it was a better modern set than people might have been giving it credit for. But we unfortunately missed actually calling out Run and Six specifically at like thirty dollars, or you know that was like twelve bucks at one point. It was like, well, no. yeah, this is doing pretty well. It was not Ren on either six. of our picks list. It wasn't on anyone on either of our pick lists, right? No, it wasn't my article. Like it, I covered it in my uh, yeah. undervalued cards for Modern Horizons, um, but I I called it as like this thing's going to take off in a year. Yeah. I did not call it this thing's going to take off in a month. Right. No one. Yeah. I don't think anyone was was there. Um. All right. So following that, Plague Engineer uh, out of Modern Horizons as well. Five and change up to eight bucks. Also seen a decent bit of modern sideboard play, even some main deck play. I saw one or two of in main decks. 
Um, I'm still sort of perplexed by this card, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't really understand why it's as popular as it is, but... It just does a lot of work against, like, X1s in humans, in fairies, in spirits, in goblins, in all sorts of, like, rando tribal um, builds. And and I think especially against things, um, a lot of the decks that are cocoing creatures into play and trying to go off with combos with X1s, um, or doing it with Finale of Devastation, etc. There are many variants on that kind of, like, good stuff combo uh, premise that are floating around in the format and plague engineer does can do some work against all of them sure which makes sense which makes sense um i guess i just wouldn't have anticipated there being enough demand for those uh you know given that it doesn't seem like modern is that tribal at the moment you know you have humans eldrazi i don't think of i mean it's obviously a tribal deck but i don't think of it as being thwarted by tribal style cards but eh, that's where we yeah, are, I suppose. It's, it's definitely those other targets that I listed. The, um, you know, Eldrazi doesn't care as much about their creatures being slightly smaller. Right. The, you know, I am also a little surprised to see the non-foil plague engineers doing this well. But again, this just under underscores the dynamics of what's going on with Modern Horizons. Had this come out of a standard set, it wouldn't have had a prayer of hitting this level. And I know that I'm pretty sure I picked up 10 or 20 of these, like under $2. I know people in our Discord got some in Europe really cheap in the like $150, $2, $250, dollars range, and everybody's looking real solid. Nice. Um, there's going to be so many good buy list opportunities coming out of this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, I, people cleaned up on Modern Horizons overall. Um, like an, an, argument, an argument could be made that you could probably double your money inside a year on modern like say you got two cases of modern horizons english mind you since you're trying to buy a list out i i would bet that if you had reasonably decent openings you could double out minus some like overpricing into a buy list and maybe get 30 or 40 percent discount on a piece of power or something that would be a pretty nice way to go turn you know a few hundred dollars in modern horizons specs into you know a grand worth of power i mean that is doing so well now that even the like war of the spark specs that i did out of europe have been paying off huge like i just i'm submitting a buy list um that i already uh, got approved for dreadhorde arcanist that i was in at 360 out at 10 Hmm. in like six weeks for i think 20 or 30 copies and then for 40 copies of nisa who shakes the world in at a dollar 80 from europe uh, exiting around five fifty or something. I mean, those are just ridiculous returns in a short period of time. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, the Dreadhorde Arcanus has done really well, um, but I guess we'll talk more about that a little later. Yep. Okay, so next on the list, we've got more Modern Horizon stuff. Dead of Winter foils going from eight to twelve, so fifty percent gain. You know, mostly modern fringe play, a little bit of EDH play on this card, but I think like there is some suspicion floating around that we're not done with snow cards yet, and that some of these snowy cards are going to get better uh, as as we get closer to a potential snow set, maybe in the next twelve to eighteen months. So we'll see how well that pays off. Goblin Engineer hasn't really done much. Uh, in non-foil yet but the foils jumped from 20 to 32 it's seeing plenty of modern play i mean urza looks like a real deck in modern it made the top eight decks of modern on an seg article by i think brian uh brian gottlieb um today or yesterday 
uh, and Engineer is almost always a three or a four of in that deck, and it's really great EDH, and other decks will probably find use for it in Modern. So not surprised to see those foils post up in that range, and I could see them actually hitting 40 or 50 in short order here. This card is probably my number one pick for Modern Horizons right now still. Like, I just like Goblin Engineer so much, and I haven't... I haven't bought any because I'm really trying not to buy any magic cards right now, but this card is, I, I just can't imagine this not being a, the, you know, you were talking about the foils at 30. I think the foils end up at 50 or 60, and I think the non-foils end up at 15. Um, yeah, 10 to, 10 to 15 within the year seems very likely. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I have 60 or 80 copies I pre-ordered from Europe at like $1.80. Wow. So. That's pretty, pretty juicy. And there's, there's plenty of people in the Discord that are in similar situations. I bet. Um, Lava Dart Foils also took off, 250 to $4. I was happy to pick up, I think, I want to say a 7 or $10 Russian foil of that that I I feel pretty sure I'm going to get $30, $40, $50 for within the year. Um, really not that many <laughs> Russian foil Lava Darts sitting around because I don't think the original printing of Lava Dart was in Russian at all. I don't think they started Russian. Russian was definitely late to the party. Is Lavender an Odyssey card? Something Original like printing? that. Something like that. Yeah, I don't think there's any Russian versions other than MH1. So well, going to be significantly rare, even though it's a common. Yeah, uh, I, I know that they did those alternate art promos. They did like Latin, Russian, um, and a couple of others. And those were around odyssey era roughly like fungal shambler was one of them um and then it was still it was a while later before they actually added russia russian as a supported language i want to say it was around like seventh or eighth edition or something i think it was later than that actually that was way yeah, back lavadard only has the two printings and it was judgment not odyssey and that was what 15 years ago and there was no russian printing so russian foil Modern Horizons, Lava Darts are the only ones in existence. Hmm. Ridiculous. There you go. That's what you're after. And I mean, that's a common, right? I mean, opening a foil rare that you're you're after or a foil mythic in your Modern Horizons boxes is actually pretty tough because they're not they're using the old foil, like regular standard foil distribution, not the new uh, double drop rate or whatever that's in uh, Magic 2020. So these foils are, you know, not surprising me when they're taking off. They just aren't that numerous. Uh, in the marketplace as a whole yep all right uh endrick sar master breeder foils out of time spiral six to ten um you've got yarak written down here but i'm fairly confident i mean that, i'm sure that's part of it but this is really more of a yogmoth card um because he gives you kind of an endless stream of creatures to sacrifice uh so he's quite good there um, but regardless, this is uh, an old time spiral foil, six to ten, so a kind of a small jump. But I could see those foils keep going because he just he does generate a ton of creatures for you. Um, the hard part is preventing him from dying, honestly, because he kills himself if you cast too many spells. Um, so I, I actually think I might be a holder at ten here. Now that Yogmoth gives you a good reason to play him, there are plenty of like decks that are interested in playing this card in Commander. Um, I understand the Yawgmoth argument. Yarok, however, can go can do things like this. Drops what seven zero ones? Yeah, but he dies when you max out. When you when you have too many, the hard part is killing the creatures fast enough. How, so when does he? What is the trigger for him to disappear? It's uh, hold on. Let me plug it in the Scryfall here because I remember the trick is getting rid of them. All right, 
whenever you control seven or more thralls, you sacrifice them. So Yarrick producing extra thralls would actually be, it'd be really hard to deal with it because you'd cast a, like a three mana spell and instead of putting three thralls in the play, you put six. But if you ever hit seven, he dies. So you essentially oh, can't yeah. cast two spells in a row or else you have yeah, to I'm, sacrifice him. I'm definitely wrong about Yarrick because this isn't a come into play trigger that is of relevance. So yeah. 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 Uh, but okay, it's it's so, Yogmoth, but even still, like he's that's that's where it's coming from. Uh and I think but he's gonna be I don't think you can play Yogmoth without him though. Like he's so good in Yogmoth because he just gives you you know, one of the things I found playing commander decks, um, especially ones that have a, a, a sacrifice sub theme, is it's actually kinda hard to find bodies to sacrifice. You need to really have some token generators going. Um, and even then it might not be enough. Uh, because all the cards in your deck are good. You don't want to get rid of them. So having a card like this, it can do it for you. You know, it really gives you the resources, the bodies um, is valuable. Yeah, I mean, his the number one commander, according to EDH rec, is Yogmoth, And then God Eternal Bantu, Liliana Dreadhorde General. Um, hmm. Seem to all be like high association cards. But in terms of commanders that are running it, Runs the gamut of the black ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. So moving right along, we have your pick from last week: Hex Drinker non foils, twelve to twenty-two. Probably floating more like in the eighteen to twenty dollars range, but uh, looks like your timing was pretty much dead on there for this card that keeps showing up in green, black, and jund lists inconsistently, but it is showing up. Yeah, this one was. Uh, <laughs> so I picked this. We released a cast at like eleven thirty at night. And by the time I got to work the next morning at like nine o'clock, they were already doubled. It, it was like 12 hours. So I'm pretty sure part of that was our discord, but nobody would own up to having cleaned this out. So maybe I don't know exactly what happened there, but supply wasn't that deep when I first started talking about it. I, I think it's like the market was already pressuring the card. Our discord bought a lot. Uh, we are not the only group on the planet that is aware that Hex Drinker was worth targeting. Right. So, you know, there's there's a lot of action pointed at MH1 cards, period. And we are certainly contributing. Yeah. Um, next on the list, we got Grand Arbiter Augustine the Fourth at a Dissension. Foils going from 42 to 80. I think this is actually a retrace and regain uh, versus a spike we saw in the winter. I want to say that the new Lavinia and some of the other taxation style cards that came out in the last six months um, had contributed to this foil taking off. I know I picked some up in Europe closer to 25, I want to say, and I've sold a couple since then. Um, this looks like some people kind of were undercutting each other and then their copies got bought up and now we're back to the you know 80 to $100 people. Yeah, this was, I swear this was in, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking this might have been in a new commander, but I don't really see it. So I think you're probably right that it's that like a retrace type effect. Uh, because I'm, I'm looking around EDH right here and seeing if there's any new cards, any new commanders that really play the gel with him, but there aren't. Um, I mean, no, no, none more so than any other. It's kind of like you could take any random magic player that's been around for 10 years. Let me go browse their the binders that are on their shelf and I will pick out in five minutes, 10 cards like this that they don't realize have spiked. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's those people that end up posting them on you know, eBay or TCG or on Facebook groups or whatever when they realize that they've spiked 
because to them, these are like free free rules, right? Like they didn't invest in these cards. They just got them out of a draft pack or some, something and just threw them into a binder and forgot about them for six, seven, eight years. And then all of a sudden they're worth, you know, dozens of dollars. Yeah. Anyone who's done the, the binder grinder game uh, has had that moment many times where you went through and offered, you know, you're being a fair guy. So you offer somebody the val- fair value for their card and they're like, I'm sorry, this card is worth how much? I got this, you know, this is a throwaway pick. Uh, you know, years ago in a draft that just sat there. Training grounds would be a really good one. I remember drafting World Wake and we took training grounds like third round pick and it was like, well, what's your reasoning for this pick? And it's just like, well, there's nothing else valuable left and I'm sure this will be good eventually. And then like somebody, that guy has probably still got that card in his binder. If I went if I went to him now, I'd be like, remember that training ground that you picked in this draft uh, seven years ago? It's now worth $20. Yep. All right, next on the list, we've got Ural the Miststalker out of Alara Reborn. Uh, foils from 12 to 28. This is a single printed foil, you know, modestly popular in EDH um, as a commander, more than a card in the 99. And with, uh, was it Amanatu that is focused on auras from the last commander set? Uh, um, no, a minute, in- a Minotaur was the top of your library shtick i don't remember what the band chick's name was uh let me see if i can find that well will you go look uh we jumped over surge node out of new phyrexia foils jumping from 8 to 16 there was a deck that had four karn four surge node and four mystic forge that 5-0 this week so mystic forge is the card one mana artifact that um, comes into play with six charge counters and then you can move charge counters to other artifacts uh, and at Mystic Forge is the one, the new card. You can look at the top card of your library whenever you want. You can cast the top card of your library if it's an artifact card, and you can pay or colorless or, or colorless, colorless, yeah, and pay a life tap sacrifice or pay a life tap exile the top card of your library. Uh, okay, so I got to be honest. I'm looking at Mystic Forge and Surge Noted, not seeing the combination. It's not like a combination between those two. There's a, it's a Karn, Great Creator, Surge Node, Astral Cornucopia, Mystic Forge, Brew that five owed on Magic Online this week. Uh, we're gonna get to that uh, in segment three. Okay. Um, that I think set this one off. The they're basically just there's a few key cards in the uh, in the deck that make Surge Node worth playing, um, and there really weren't that many foils sitting around anyway because it's from New Phyrexia. Yeah, and I think this is, has seen some some level of popularity as well in the past just from putting charge counters on artifacts, which uh, people occasionally like to do. So you were right. Amanatu, the Fate Shifter, was, as you said, about uh, top of library shenanigans. It was Estrid the Masked. Estrid. That, that was about uh, auras and so forth, uh, and uh, probably has a little bit of pressure influence on Ural, um, although I suspect that's just a card that has drained over the course of a decade. Um, there's probably 50 or 60 relatively minor foils that made big moves this week that we didn't put on the list um, because they don't have anything really going on other than that they are drained. Yeah. You know, time, time has passed. And that's true most weeks that there are a few, several dozen foils that take off just in the sense that the cheapest copies dry up and there is nothing but ridiculously priced ones left. And then the market tests those prices. I'm positive that I have looked up Ural a couple times to try and go in on it, but the supply and the numbers just were never quite right. Uh, but for sure, 
He's, I, I, I knew it was going to happen eventually. It had to come at some point in time. It just happened to be now. Um, can I just say, what would you say? Her name's Estrid, right? Mm-hmm. She sounds like somebody from Harry Potter. Like, I feel like <laughs> that's like... I know that McGonagall is like the old lady <laughs> professor, right? That they end up liking, but I feel like Estrid could be like another kind of, you know, old bitty type character floating around. Is, is she in a poster? Is there a character named Estrid in a poster or in no a portrait idea. or something? I don't really know Harry Potter. Uh, I mean, it sounds like I fully agree that it sounds like a name that could easily be associated with a character in that world. Yeah. Um, move right along. Unearth copies from MH1 foils this is my pick from last week going from three to nine uh it was right on the verge and i think we pushed it over uh m25 foils also up 100 percent, so between 100 and 200 percent nice little gains and i don't think we're likely to see much of a retrace because as if anybody dumps three four or five dollar copies on the market they are just going to get eaten up again because easy 10 to 15 dollar foil a little further down the road Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's uh that's a good one I like this next one. Life Goes On from Hour of Devastation foils from $2 to $6. This is the single green casting cost instant that gives you four life. But if a creature died this turn, it gives you eight life. So in certain decks, that is a nice little uh, insurance package against burn running you over. Yeah, uh, it's been real popular lately. um, And I'm sure there's a couple other interactions that we're missing to, you know, the subtle things that pop up that make the card... uh, Really tasty, um, but yeah, one mana eight life is uh, is a pretty good rate if you are just trying to overpower burn. Yeah, and as you said, there's probably a whole bunch of fringe cases where decks are trying to abuse their creatures coming in and out of the graveyard, and for some reason you need that eight life to give you enough padding to do your thing. I I do remember playing. Um, oh shoot, what the heck was that card? Oh, you guys don't want to listen to me. We're trying to figure this out, but it was Rest for the Weary, I think it was. Maybe does that sound right? Which was like a two mana white spell that gained a couple life, like gained like four life or eight life. Um, and we played that to beat Burn because that's what you had to do. So I, I think these types of effects will always be, there'll always be a slot for them so long as I, the numbers are right. I feel like there's something Passage, white instant, one and a white that gives you four, eight if there's landfall. Safe Passage, maybe can't remember yeah. but anyway we should talk about that for a while <laughs> moving a little right along instead <laughs> land war reborn uh threw me for a loop that the foils went from 25 to in theory 80 let's call that conservatively 40 to 60 realistically apparently it's uh, a four of in a lot of the hardened scales builds but not all of them um depending on who's building the deck uh it's from future site future site foils are not easy to come by in general and you know any even though this was i think only an uncommon the foils are significantly more rare than most rares today so not tremendously surprised given that hardened scales still lingers on the fringes of the format nobody really seems to think affinity is where it's at for modern right now but a good affinity player can still run a a player that you know keeps the wrong hand over in short order Oh, yeah. The, that deck hasn't gotten slower. Uh, the rest of the format just got faster. But then it just got slowed down again. So Slightly. I do, I do wonder how much of that is just players being less interested in playing the same deck over and over and over and wanting to try something a little spicier than Affinity having gotten worse. Well, I feel like this is the kind of card where you're really going to have trouble finding a buyer to unload a full playset to. Like, I would probably, if, if the 
Lowest posted price is something like 65 on TCG. I'm probably going to try to get like 188.88 out of a playset if I was holding. Yeah. I'm not. Um, just to have some chance of unloading relatively quickly. All, All right. right. The top mover on the list this week is Lana Luan, Cephalid Empress, a card that I'm amused to see on here. And let me tell you why I'm amused to see this on here. Uh, longtime readers of my work, uh, all uh, one of you, hi, mom, um, will remember that I wrote an article on MTG Price years and years ago about how Luan Cephalid Empress was a really good example of how Legacy would eventually die. Um, and I pointed out that she used to be like a 20 or $30 card and Legacy got a little less popular and people, her price dropped because she wasn't inherently expensive because she was good in Legacy. She was just expensive because she was useful at the time. And as her usefulness fell away, the price dropped. Um, people got really angry about that. Some people did for whatever reason. Uh, so to see her back at the top of our list is kind of amusing because I have had I guess I just remember this card. It stands out to me, right? And I remember flipping through my binder and finding one. In fact, I think I have a foil in my own EDH binder and just kind of like chuckling at it and like, oh, wow, if I had sold this back in the day. Um, but here we go. It's back again. Uh, and the reason being is that, as I alluded to in our very long cold open, that this is a, a good approximation for Yona. And with Painter's, which we just got banned, um, but more so than that, with Painter's Servant, you name Blue, and then you play a card that you're color that you're already inclined to play because you people kind of play blue cards that hate on blue anyways. And then you play Luan Cephalid Empress, which returns all blue creatures and they can't play blue spells. So you play Painter Servant, you name blue, you play Luan, it upheavals their creatures and then they can't play any more spells. Uh, so a pretty nasty one, two punch. Um, it's no grindstone, which just kills somebody, but it is probably a little more fair, a little more fun without being like, oh, you just killed Joe. So uh, those foils are not going anywhere. Like they're at 60 and they will sell very slowly and they might retrace down to like 40 or 45, but they're definitely going to sit up there because this is a torment foil. We have not seen it again. Um, so there's no real good supply to come back to the market. Yep. Agree with all of that. Um, and I think you, you're you probably going to get, if you aim just slightly lower than this you know peak price point, you're probably going to unload because there just aren't that many of these sitting around. Torment foils are also pretty rare. Yeah, now is the time to do it because the people who are excited about Painter Servant are going to snag them now so they can do this to their friends. I would expect the price to decay over time as the novelty wears off a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to our largest cards to watch list of all time. Try to plow through this pretty quick. Got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine picks this week. And I feel pretty good about almost all of these. Um, my first pick this week is Omnath Locus of Rage Foils from Battle for Zendikar. Short to mid timeline, confidence level of eight out of ten. Um, buy price somewhere around $10 or so. I see that Channel Fireball has got a little buy wall or sell wall up here on TCG, 14 copies at $8.99 plus $0.99 cent shipping. That seems like a slam dunk. Um, it's already in 4K EDH rec decks. We just got Little Omnath that sets off a teamer build uh, for elementals in Commander that this fits right into. There are a whole bunch of land uh, fall matters cards that have been printed in the last year. We've got Windgrace decks that have come together and a whole bunch of other 
cards that fit into those decks that uh, play well with this. And it's in like 10% of possible decks in Commander, um, 1,500 decks just as a Commander itself. And the, the price curve on this and the level of inventory is very low and likely to pop up over 20 in a hurry here. Um, you snap off those Channel Fireball copies, and if Channel Fireball doesn't have another 100 to back it up and keep the price low, then sooner rather than later, you're going to find yourself with $20 copies that you can buy list for 14 to 16 or something. Yeah, Omniath Locus of Rage is an absurdly popular commander. Isn't he like top th- top 10 all time? He's up there. Uh, okay, not 10. He is like the 20th most popular commander. I think. Um, Yeah, exactly number 20. So really popular commander. People keep coming back to this. And you actually just got all the elemental dump as well, right? Because he generates elementals and we just got more elementals. So can you imagine having Omnath in play, you know, having Locust of Rage in play with uh, Risen Reef? And then you just, and then you play an elemental, which triggers Risen Reef, which then you find a land and put the land in the play and you get the 5-5 in the play. Yep. And then the 5-5 five, five triggers Risen Reef, who finds a land, and you can just keep going. Ooh. Well, and Ooh. Omnath, Locus of, Locus of the Royal, was just printed in M20, which is the one-teamer for a 3-3, three, three, uh, the younger version of this character. And when it enters the battlefield, it deals damage to any target equal to the number of elementals you control. And whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on target elemental. And if you control eight or more lands, draw a card. So, I mean, there's a whole interlocking series of pieces here that people are going to be fooling around with in Commander for years. Okay, wait, I'm still stuck on this. You can get an infinite chain going because the five, five elemental will create a, a risen reef trigger who can put a land in the play who will trigger the landfall trigger. And if you have like sensei's top in play and you can keep finding one mana, you can just keep filtering the top three of your deck over and over and over to look for, uh, keep a land on top every time in between all those triggers. Holy crow. Yeah. There's, there's a bunch of nasty stuff. Oh, Oh, now I gotta go build this. That just sounds delightful. Just build this entire deck just to have done that once and go, okay, take it apart. What? And it's nice that this guy is is blue, uh, sorry, green red and fits into, you know, everything from, you know, Yarok colors in Sultai, Lord Windgrace in Jund colors, Locus of the Royal in Teemer. So, and there are land related themes in all three of those those color triplets. So, and this is just for now. You know, who else knows what's coming down the road? But we we get a lot of land matters cards in any given year. It's a fairly strong theme in Magic overall. So, and this card is not due for a reprint. It's got a few more years on on the clock. Yeah, I, I really like the foils here um, at ten. Uh, even you know, even if it's going to take a l- even if it takes you know a couple months, uh, it still is going to be it's going to be solid. There's no way you're not going to be able to get rid of these at twenty. All right, what's your first pick? First pick of the week. I've got I've got several this week. Um, I think they're all the the only problem with some of these. This one in particular is you might have trouble finding them at the price I'm quoting, but there is at least one copy available for the price I'm noting, so I get to make this claim that it's legal. Um, Soul of the Harvest foils out of Avicen Restored. So Soul of the Harvest has been around several times. Uh, it was a secret standard card at one point, um, originally printed in Avicen Restored. So let's see, it has been in Avicen Restored, C14, the Welcome Deck 2016, the Commander Anthology, Explorers of Ixalan, 
Um, so it's it's been around a bit. That's, uh, that's a lot of lot of printings, but only one of them's foil. Uh, that'd be true. So f- foils are uh, are you can technically they're five dollars, but supply is ultra short on those. So this is basically a, just a heads up. Like if you guys can find any at that price, you should grab them because it ramps up to ten almost immediately. Um, it's in 10,000 decks. It's really high synergy with Yarek, who people are going to start building. Uh, so it's already popular. It's going to see a surge in demand now. There's no supply. If you buy copies at five, you will sell them at 10 to 15. Like, guaranteed. Guaranteed. And the timeline on this is like hours? Hours. I don't know about hours, but certainly days to low number of weeks. I, and I could easily see our Discord take taking this taken down the 20 available copies in North America and mining some in Europe as well before the non-pro traders get a get a handle on this one. Yeah, I, I would go so far as to say this will be sell this you will not be able to buy this for under $10 by the time we unlock this cast. Oh, I just found a really nice cache of these for too cheap. And don't forget that I I unlocked the cast so I will just wait until this is $10. I can backdoor victory on that one. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, I just found four at five bucks a piece, so Ooh. those are going straight into my cart. That's tasty. I know we always have your own cart open while we record this. <laughs> yeah. Um, try not to bite off too much of what is supposed to be left for others. My next pick is Seasons Past Foils, which I'm sure we picked maybe a year ago. Um, time to look at these again. This is another one of these picks where the original call was probably early, but now timing and the curve on the price ladder is looking pretty attractive. Shadows over Innistrad, uh, Mythic Foil, $9, maybe $10 when you're picking them up. And I think if you target a $16 entry, you're being fair and conservative. Target a $20 entry inside a year, and you're probably doing pretty well. It's in 6K EDH rec decks. 5% of all green decks that could run it do run it, and probably more of them should be. And this is the the card that basically brings back a card into your graveyard of uh, one of each casting cost of your choice. So it works really well in decks like Maldratha and other decks that fill up their graveyards and then look to recurse things for value and relatively unique effect um, that can provide big card advantage in the late game. Yep, this is, uh, again, like you said, relatively popular in EDH. 5% of all green decks is actually a lot of decks. Uh, There's a lot of green decks in EDH. Um, And I think players are going to keep coming back to this just because of the, you know, six mana four draw zillion and you get to play a bunch of a bunch of cards, play a card for free when you cast it. Right. Is that this one? Uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the other one. Uh, Still a very powerful card. Like it's a six mana draw six, most likely, possibly even more than that in some games. Um, So, yeah, I like it. Foil. The foil ramp is real steep. Your next pick. Uh, my next pick is Finale of Devastation, Foils out of War of the Spark. Uh, about 25 bucks right now, both for pack foils and pre-release foils. I think you're going to see this at 40 45 maybe even $50. Um, 50 might be stretching it a little bit. Uh, the supply is moderate, but it ramps up to over 30 fairly quickly. So even though there's, you know, 25 vendors, there's probably only 12 or 13 copies available under 30 um final devastation is doing pretty solid in edh it's not it's like the seventh most popular card in war of the spark in edh but war of the spark is packed with edh staples um it's at over two thousand it's over two thousand right now which is pretty solid and the the most popular card in war of the spark is under three thousand so it's about two-thirds as popular as the most popular war of the spark card uh 
It's also showing up in modern in the Vizier decks because it is a another take on the Court of Calling deck or on Court of Calling. Um, so it's it's useful in that regard as well. And I think this is really I think this is going to keep showing up in EDH over and over again because unlike Green Sun Zenith, which only fetches green creatures, this will fetch any creature, which makes the card much more appealing because it will fetch Eldrazi, it will fetch multicolor cards, it will fetch your Butcher Malakir. It does a lot of work for you, and you even get like a mini Crater Hope Behemoth if you spend enough mana on it. Um, so I think the the seeds are sown here both in EDH and Modern for this to keep ramping up um even though that foil price that foil buy-in is a little high right now war of the spark is just such a popular set uh it's not like it's the only card in the set with value and it's going to be chained by that i mean the whole set is just is just ripe so everything's kind of moving boxes of the set are going to do well we've talked about that in the past Uh, i call i called this exact same pick episode 168 so 11 episodes ago um mid-may and we that was when we were starting to see it edge its way in the modern. Since then, it has posted like well over 10 or 15 different modern 5.0 lists. And as you said, it's showing up in all sorts of combo slash value engines um, that include green uh, in the deck uh, that are looking to do, usually execute on creature combos because, of course, that's where this card slots in perfectly. And awesome long-term edh card and it's a mythic not a rare i mean just the fact that these finales uh were in you know were mythics (laughs) made us look take a hard look at all of them and i think it's pretty obvious that the green one is the the most important um the red one has also done reasonable amount of work in in uh uh, blue red decks in modern um Mm -hmm. that want to combo off but uh, i think green is my pick for the most likely four of that also has edh support how much was it when you picked it uh, 11 Tw- episodes ago? 22. Okay. So it's inching. It's inching. Yeah. Yeah. I, you well, know, I don't we're, feel... We're getting, close, we're getting closer to a tipping point here. I don't feel bad when we pick the same card um, a couple weeks apart. It, unbeknownst well, to almost, it. Be- oh, almost 12 weeks, really. Yeah. Three, and and three I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's a week apart. Sometimes it's, you know, three months apart. But I think it just, you know, I, I don't think of it as like... I think of it as validation for our listeners that we like sort of arrived at the same idea at roughly the same point in time, right? Like, well, and, and the alternative is that if I, if I call something early and you call it at the correct time, six months later, your pick is still, still needs to happen. <laughs> the, you can criticize me at the same time that, that my pick was early, but it doesn't change the fact that the best possible move in that given week is going to be the pick you've made. Well, that wasn't the um, point I was making. The point I was making is that our listeners shouldn't feel cheated for getting repeat picks because it's just validation that it's actually good if we we're both getting there. Uh, <laughs> wasn't trying to burn you with that. Oh, no. And, and you know, I, believe me, our, our track record speaks for itself. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't worry too much when, when we get something a little early or a little wrong. Yeah. Um, so let, here's an interesting one to compare to Finale of Devastation. Also from War of the Spark, but it's a rare, not a mythic. And these foils are already at $25, and I'm calling them to go to 40 But in you know, if you believe in my in this pick, then you have to believe in Finale of Devastation. Dreadhorde Arcanist is the pick here. Foils sitting around at 25 bucks. This card is all over the place. In Modern and Legacy, probably ends up as a Historic staple, too, if Historic unfolds as the replacement for Modern in the next few years, because it would be one of the more popular two-drops as that format unfolds. So, um... I, I could see this 
turning into a snapcaster mage type situation where it shows up in enough formats often enough in enough different lists that the foils end up 50 60 70 80 dollars before they get a reprint which you know this just got printed this this card is not going to see the light of day for three or four years as foil um even if you see dreadhorde arcanist show up in a challenger deck next spring they won't be foil so i think this pick is real strong um and reinforces how much better maybe finale of devastation is which is also a four of in many lists and a mythic rather than a rare from the same set well, you know, this is this is uh this is pricey, right? This is a $25 rare foil um from a current set. So, it's not it's not the cheapest card, but at the same time, it I can't argue with you that it has seen a heck of a lot of play. It's very popular. Uh it is essentially becoming the red snapcaster mage because it doesn't give you quite as much precision, but it gives you a repeated effect. Uh it's a it's a powerful card. So, I uh, you well, know, and, and- and take a look at the take a look at the price ladder here. Like there are very, as you said, with the Soul of the Harvest copies at five, not so many of them around at five. Maybe going to be a little easier for people to pick those up at six, seven, eight. Likewise, you might be looking at thirty if you're lucky on the Arcanist, depending on when you hear this call, because there's only like eleven listings left on TCG Player, wow. and most of them, some of at least half of them, are over thirty anyway. Yeah. So. If you don't scoop these up under 30, you're going to be paying 40 or 50 later. Yeah, I can't really argue with the stock numbers. They're like non-existent. Yeah. yeah. So there you, I, I can't I can't I can't pick a fight with you just if only because the stock is so good. And and I buy listed for very good returns about 20 non-foils, as I said earlier in the cast. But I almost didn't. I, I, I almost took a step back and went, wait, 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 like. Yeah, you're supposed to take it when you're doubling up in a short period of time, but maybe this card's going to hit 20. Like currently 10 to 12 for the non-foils uh, is available out there, but maybe this is going to be 20 in six months, in which case I should just hold. Um, I think I ended up throw shipping the 20 because I f- realized I still had some copies probably sitting around in Ohio that I've got to pick up this weekend. So I was kind of hedging my bets a little bit, but had it been my only copies, I might have thought a little harder about it. Hmm. That's uh. Well, well, you 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 win either way, right? Yep. Um. All right. So following that, uh, I have Matter Reshaper. Um, foils out of uh, I have War of the Spark. That's wrong. It's supposed to be Oath of the Gate Watch. So Matter Reshaper, if you'll recall, is the uh, the little Eldrazi that could. Although maybe that should be reserved for Eldrazi Mimic. It's a three mana three two, uh, and when it dies. You flip the top card of your library, and if it's a permanent with three or mana, three mana or less, you put it in the play, and if not, you draw that card. So at worst, it draws you a card. At best, it casts you a three mana card. Um, this has slowly been creeping up. Uh, you know, we're a little older now. It didn't, it didn't, Eldrazi has been doing consistent and modern um, after the banning of Eldrazi Temple, obviously, or Ivogan, whichever it was. I will get the Eldrazi slowed down a little bit, but they're still showing up regularly every week. People are continuing to play Matter Reshaper and Supply is getting down there a little bit. There's about 28 vendors for the pack foils right now, um, and you can find them at 550, five bucks or so, six bucks. But the ramp up to seven and eight is real short, uh, maybe a play set or two before you're going to be paying eight dollars. And, you know, the format just slowed down a little bit. Um, Eldrazi keep doing well. I think people are just going to keep coming back to this well 
Uh, and these are going to end up being at like 10, 12 bucks. So I don't think it's going to be a huge jump and I don't think it's going to be tomorrow, but I am fairly confident that if you can pay five or $6 for these, you will walk away selling them at a profit. Well, we're, we're circled back to my call last week of reality smasher foils at 10 where thought not seers were more like 15 to 20, right? These are all foil rares from the same set. And as you said, the Eldrazi Tron lists tend to run something like three Walking Ballista, four Matter Reshaper, four Thought Knot, four Reality Smasher these days. They've got Karn the Great Creator on their team now to go get the toolbox out of the sideboard. That certainly helps. Yeah. And Chalice the Void isn't any worse than it was before. A lot of people, I think it was Kai Bode this week on Twitter was making fun of Reality Smasher saying that it was kind of like not a, not one of the cards that is what makes this deck playable right now. Um, that it, like, insinuating almost that it will end up cut at some point when a better option presents itself because the the five the five five body, um, even with trample and haste, just isn't really what wins you games in modern, and kind of ins- insinuating that it's more like Karn the Great Creator being able to leverage the sideboard toolbox plus Chalice of the Void that really like sets this deck up for success. And then, of course, Eldrazi Temple giving you the mana advantage in the early game, letting you drop Matter Reshaper on two instead of three, and Thought Not on three instead of four, and Reality Smasher on four instead of five. And that if you were forced to play fair with these cards, maybe none of them would see play in modern. Uh, I mean, I, I can't say he's completely wrong, right? Like, Reality Smasher is an absurd card, but Hasty Five Fives probably don't win you games as much as just chalicing people out of the game or carning people out of the game wins you games um you know if i think that they're playing eldrazi because they're the most efficient tribe to pair with chalice of the void and um karn basically uh you know they would be playing affinity if it weren't for the fact that you would probably lock half of your deck out with your chalice of the voids but I also don't see Eldrazi getting replaced as the tribal, the best tribe to pair with Chalice of the Void and Karn anytime in the near future. You want colorless cards um, or, you know, monocolor. You want uh, good hefty creatures that can put the game away on their own. And I think a lot of the Eldrazi are capable of that. You don't want them to, you want their mana cost to be above one and two, but you also want them to be playable at one and two, essentially land. So uh, I, at the end of the day, I think they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, and the reality... I, I mean, I think that the evaluation of Reality Smasher and perhaps extending their matter reshaper is a little faulty anyway. Because it, if you look at how these cards line up against the point removal in the format, Path Exile obviously is still reasonably good. But when Reality Smasher becomes the target of a spell and opponent controls, you can't that spell unless they discard a card. So you get you tend to get card advantage there. And Lightning Bolt doesn't kill it. Fatal Push can't kill it because Fatal Push can maxes out at four casting costs and Reality Smashers a five. And if you do any of those things that matter Reshaper and it dies other than exiling it, then you uh, reveal the top card of your library and you put that card onto the battle fleet if it's a permanent card with converted mana cost three or less. Otherwise, you put the card in your hand. So what Reshaper, Thought Not, and Reality Smasher have in common is card advantage. They are all potential two-for-ones. Mm-hmm. Um, in the right situation. And that's a big part of what allows you to just get one of those threats on the table and apply a lot of pressure that your opponent often has to find not one, but two 
ways around you know both both a card to deal with your card plus a card to deal with the card that you get out of that transaction and then they've got to you know apply their own threat to win the game at the same time which i think is why they're so good to pair with chalice and karn because you're you know if you're playing those types of cards you're not going to be flooding the board with creature threats um and these all do kind of double or triple duty where you know a naked human without backup support doesn't uh you know champion of the parish requires several humans in your draw El- reality smasher only has to be the only, can be the only card on the table and he can still do a lot of work on his own it's also worth noting that eldrazi tron is now running like two copies of ugin the ineffable which makes colorless spells cost two less to cast so if they tron up early drop ugin and then your reality smashers cost like if you have an eldrazi temple out and ugin then your reality smasher costs one pretty uh pretty tasty yeah that's that's not trivial either G- going from eldrazi temple and the tron package to having two additional cards that reduce the cost of whatever mid-range eldrazi threats you draw moves you moves you down the road a little bit yeah all right so i like i like modern reshaper um i have another rare this one from modern horizons uh to throw at you lightning skelemental most people just thought this was a meme card when it was revealed for the set. I don't think any any I don't think I saw anybody write it up as anything more than okay, yeah, that's obviously a pushed ball lightning, but ball lightning isn't playable in modern, so moving right along. And instead here we are with it showing up in multiple 5-0 lists. We're gonna talk about a couple of different builds um shortly here. I've seen at least three or four different decks that have used this to good effect and have 5-0 in the last couple weeks, both before the Hogak ban and after um foils are in the eu close to 10 i've snapped up some of those but i think the non-foils that are out there around 250 to 3 are equally tasty looking for a double up into the five six seven dollar range within the year Um, i don't see it being a tier one modern card but i think it's going to lurk on the fringes be very popular with the kind of people that show up at fnm and i can easily see them pushing the number up on these say in nine to twelve months uh yeah, we we I'm trying to think about what we talked about this uh on the cast um when we did the initial set review with Fournier. I I feel like we looked at it and we're like, "Hey, you know, this isn't this isn't I, bad." Right? Like I think, it, For- I think Fournier said, "I want this to be playable." Yeah. But that's his his way of saying it was terrible. And yeah. yet another card that just went ahead and smash some leagues anyway well you know ball lightning has been on and off for a long time it's long been the domain of budget red decks for the most part um but this card at least piqued their curiosity oh you know what it was i remember saying that you could play blightning and this card and uh a sidraxis specter and just cast every blightning in magic um but yeah, really, what what took off here, I think, was what really is making getting lightning elemental out there isn't just that it's efficient; it's that you also get that elemental recursion creature, the other dreadhorde canish like thunderhead, thundercan awakener. Yeah, that guy. So the, he really is a good pair with this because now you get to rebuy your skeletal, and that's pretty disgusting because they're go- they there's a pretty good chance they'll have removal for the first skeletal, but they're probably not going to have it for the second one, um which means that now you're really getting to do some damage. Uh 
let's put it this way. I, I went ahead. I think I bought some of these just in my cart of long shots early on for Modern Horizons at about a dollar. And I was I went ahead and just loaded up another twelve at two fifty today because it just with a five percent discount I think from Miniature Market uh, that the pro traders have access to, and felt very good about it. Like I, I think any of these playable modern rares, Modern Horizons deserve to be over five dollars within the year. There's just no question. Yeah, I mean, when you approach it from that perspective, I think it's hard to really go wrong. You know, I don't think it's my favorite pick here, and I think that action is not is not as sexy as some of the other stuff we've talked about. Um, but at the same time, it's it's just going to be it's just going to sit there and it's going to get played, and people are going to reanimate it, and uh, you're going to turn around one day and it's going to be a, a five dollar card. And you're going to be like, oh, when did that happen? Uh, and the answer will have been, you know. People have been playing it. People have been reanimating it. So I think that it is totally fine um, to throw in your cart when you're you're buying other stuff, grab a couple of cheap copies, and then be glad that you did down the road. The other card that got added into the mix here that made my pick list last week and that showed up in the um, big movers this week is Unearth, of course. Unearth getting three casting cost creatures means that you can unearth lightning scale elementals back into play. So you can throw four ball lightning and four lightning scale elemental, four unearth, and... Um, for Thunderkin Awakener in a deck and build it out in a couple of different ways and have a pretty decent core value engine that's going to put a lot of pressure on opponents. Yeah, that is uh, getting the Unearth Lightning or Thunderkin Awakener who then gets back your Lightning Skelemental. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right, your your final pick of the week? Uh, last pick of the week here is, uh, I guess, an old friend, a new friend, uh, someone I'm warning you not to forget about, our good buddy Hogak. Um, it's kind of fallen off the face, you know, pe- people, uh, maybe gotten a little cool on it with the, alt- with the bridge from below ban, which I want to just point out, I called like spot on, right? Like spot on. Uh, but altar of dementia and Hogak are still legal. That's still a ludicrous engine. People are still going to play it. Um, it's already showed up in a couple different five O lists without, bridge from below several uh, yeah so it's definitely still a potent card and people people might figure it out by the pro tour they might figure it out this year then maybe that takes them till next year but this card is going to be this card is essentially a grenade it's a time bomb and nobody can see the timer because it is going to go off again and when it does that price memory is going to drive the prices into the stratosphere instantly because people are going to know it's a real card like oh yeah remember when hogak destroyed modern in like a week uh well when when someone you know when when a channel fireball team shows up the pro tour and they've all got four hogaks in the deck they're going to be like yep i don't have to wonder if this is good enough it is um, so you can really go either direction, foils or non-foils. I like the foils a little bit more at 18. The supply is still pretty shallow. They're going to uh, drain faster. Yeah, and that's the thing is if this deck settles only into role player, then it might not put as much work into the non-foils, but the people who are playing the deck as a role player will still will want the foils. Um, so and plus it'll you know you'll still see this in commander as well uh so the foils you know give you a little bit of range there as well so i I think you know if you're getting in on this under 20 uh you can probably ride this up to 35 ish maybe even 45 or 50 depending on how good this is when it returns it's either the first time or amongst a very small population of cards we've ever called shortly after a relevant banning um but i feel confident with this one i think foils especially are still relatively shallow 
Um, don't think that many re-entered the market on the banning. Um, they are being targeted. The ladder is setting up for gains. Um, I think the non-foils people are going to be gun-shy on because a lot of people will have just turned in copies into like playsets in disgust um, or dumped them into the market realizing that their gains had evaporated, didn't get out fast enough. Um, you know, I got caught holding 20 or 30 Hogax that I acquired at like $2 or something. Um, but I'm happy. I'm not really upset to be holding them. Like not only are they already in theory worth double that price, um, but the, the card doesn't need altar, doesn't need bridge from below to be good. Um, the lists that are running it are from completely different angles. I mean, still graveyard based obviously, but are don't, don't seem to be missing those cards. Is the deck still capable of turn 1.5 turn two kills? No. But is it still a viable deck in the format? Yes, clearly. And we're going to go through that shortly here with the 5-0 lists and, and see a whole bunch of little innovative things that are being done around this card. That mean, I, I think that if you're getting non-foils, you're looking at a year out just to be reasonable, like plan safely. Um, because the market is going to take some time to get used to the idea that the card is still good. But we have a, pro, a modern pro tour coming up. And if Hogak you know, has a good conversion percentage into day two or put something into the top eight, people are going to jump all over it because they've already made money on the card. And if they see an opportunity to do it again, it's going to be a pile on. Yeah, this would hardly be the first time people have bought into a card, sold it, profited, and then got back in and did it again on the same card. Like the people Stoneforge who... Stoneforge Mystic. Uh, the, the one that got banned in standard, Aetherworks Marvel... Like, this happens, and people know it happens. Um, so the people like you and I and the people who occupy this space uh, recognize that as a, as a distinct possibility, too. People in our Discord have already been talking about that I picked up, you know, pick up four, eight, 12 copies before I, we, we touched this pick this week. There's already people making moves on this card that feels even more strongly about it than we do. Um, I think it's going to be a good one. Um, my final pick this week is just really a, a follow-on to a pick that I made several weeks back. Um, I called Karn the Great Creator under 10, saying that the card was making significant inroads into modern. Um, six weeks later, it's not just making inroads. It is absolutely everywhere. There are at least 10 different deck lists that make use of Karn, and it's not a onesie-twosie. It's almost always a four-of. They throw a couple of toolbox uh, artifacts into their sideboard. Doesn't hurt that a lot of the relevant sideboard cards in Modern are already artifacts, things like Graphic Digger's Cage and Nile Spellbomb, etc. Um, and now that you've got the micro, Mycosynth Lattice combo that you can lead into when, the, when it's the right time to do so, we're just seeing Karn everywhere. Um, so now I'm looking at... First of all, I, there's like $8.50 copies of Karn the Great Creator. That's crazy pants. That's a future $20 to $30 card um, all day long. I, I, yeah. I think you could, even if you got rid of Mycosynth Lattice in Modern, I don't think it would make the card much worse. I think people would still be playing it. And so now I'm looking at the Japanese non-foils, alt art, at around $20. You can find them at $18 to $22, depending on where you're, you're sourcing them from. Um, the art is definitely better. The foils of those are already well over $200, and the gap is going to close over time. They're, these $20 copies of Karn, as long as it stays relevant and modern and it shows every, every, we have every reason to believe that it will, um, I'd say a year out, maybe 18 months out, those are going to be $40 copies. And they're going to be the preference of anybody who is playing with them long term, because the art's just way, way better. 
This is so. This is something. I first of all, this is probably the only view. I have I cannot argue that this isn't the probably the best art out of the Japanese all arts. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely re- top three, almost no matter which one you like better. Yeah, and you don't have to be into anime to think it's the best one because I obviously you guys are all familiar with my opinion, and I still think that that's the best one. So that one at double the price on is is certainly tempting. Um, Eight dollars for non foils is cheap. I didn't realize they were that cheap. I I have gone and looked up this card like four or five times already, and I keep wanting to pick to pick it because it seems so juicy. Um, I, I and that yeah. I mean, you know what's interesting about this is Ari Lax was actually just talking about this. Uh, if it wasn't this week, it was recently, and he made the point that he thinks this is good for modern because it encourages fair decks and discourages unfair decks because if you have a board full of useful permanents putting mycosynth lattice in the play doesn't stop your opponents for instance reality smasher from attacking um you know it, it's effective in that regard it, and for current and for current to do that he's got to go down in loyalty exposing him to creature attack yeah so if you're putting creatures on the board the Karn Mycosynth plan is weak. Where it gets good is decks that just want to explode out of nowhere because it catches them with their pants down. So, and, and because it's flexible, it also it means that it's not being forced into one shell that everyone has to play. Like you can kind of put it in a lot of places. So, it's it's interesting that this might actually become that Wizards might be like, hey, we're okay with this being fairly ubiquitous because we like how it kind of shapes the format. And it could be self-correcting too, right? All right, like maybe the Pro Tour is pretty heavy on Karn. And then the metagame sort of adapts for that and starts to play much heavier creature decks uh, that get to beat up on Karn. And you kind of see him do a Death Shadow thing where he's really popular for several months and everyone's kind of like, this might be too good. But then eventually the metagame settles out and he's only tier one instead of like, why is this still legal? Yeah. And and the thing is that nobody's really saying that the card is too good for modern. People are saying that the latti- playing against Lattice is... is- obnoxious and that arguments can be made that that is that puts him a little like may, might put him over the top well i don't like that argument power because nobody plays against lattice <laughs> you can't <laughs> play against lattice <laughs> so this is a good segue though let's let's move over to the metagame week in review the last few weeks we've been looking at modern leagues predominantly and some of the results from modern tournaments the leagues this week are just as interesting as they've been for pretty much every week for the last 12 um, it's been a very interesting late spring, early summer for Modern um, with all of the new cards from War of the Spark and Modern Horizons. So let me just run you through a couple of the places that Great Creator shows up in these lists this week that went 5-0. Here's a deck no one has played before, to my knowledge. Four Karn the Great Creator, four Liliana of the Veil. Right away, don't remember seeing those two cards paired before, especially not as four ofs. A Liliana of the Last Hope, and then Goblin Engineer... Four Collective Brutality, two Damnation, four Inquisition of Kozilek. So you have some black-red disruptive elements there. Uh, Sorry, uh, black disruptive elements. And then on the artifact side, pairing with the Goblin Engineer, four Arkham's Astrolab, one of my picks from on the Discord a little while back. I think we were picking them up at like 25 cents. That seemed ridiculously cheap. Three Ensnaring Bridge, four Nile Spellbomb, two Piping Needle, and then 24 lands. This is just... Black control, basically. Hmm. So you've you've got your deck being shrunk a little bit with the Astrolab. 
You've got Ensnaring Bridge locking down creature decks. You've got Nile Spellbomb dealing with a variety of graveyard problems, including the Hogak decks that still exist, the Hollow One decks, your Dredge decks. Dredge is back in position to be probably the best graveyard deck. Um, and of course, Arclight Phoenix decks, both blue, red, and red, still abuse the graveyard. Um, very interesting. Completely different configuration from anything we've seen thus far, to my knowledge. And then you've got this other completely different deck going 5-0 in the same week. This one is Bant Colors. So instead of pairing four Karn the Great Creator with four Liliana of the Veil, it's four Teferi Time Raveler. And then it's got the whole package of Devoted Druid and Vizier of Remedies with your pick of the week, Finale of Devastation, paired with four uh, Eladomri's Call, the new instant tutor that everybody underestimated that's going to make us some money. Um, for Oath of Nisa, for Utopia Sprawls, so you've got that whole uh, ramp package going on. And then Arbor Elf, Eternal Witness, Tireless Tracker, and Walking Ballista for some, you know, some value. Completely different angle of approach. Still running the full four copies. Almost every other element of the deck is different. This is uh, this is a fun deck too. For a lot of reasons called this is this is feels like it's all in on the combo. Um, you know, with the, with the, like the Utopia Sprawl and the Arbor Elf and the four Alatomers Call and four Finale is eight different creature tutors. Um, they're really on that page. Uh, but then you have the eight Planeswalkers too, to try and play, you know, kind of a mid range game and slow your opponents down. That's a fascinating approach. I mean, we talked about Eladomri's Call and how it was going to let you go get the half of Vizier Remedies devoted Druid you were missing. And here we are. So, and that's not just, that's not all. Completely different deck. This one's got only two copies of Karn the Great Creator, but it's basically playing, it's like Big Blue Tron. So two Karn the Great Creator, an Ugin the Spirit Dragon, Snapcaster Mage, Trinket Mage, Walking Ballistas, one Worm Coil Engine, four Condescend, Cyclonic Rift, Remand, Repeal, Thirst for Knowledge, Warping Whale. This is with like Mind Slaver and stuff. This harkens back to Blue Tron from years ago. And yet, here we go. Morkarn the Great Creator, completely different list. Oh yeah, wait, that... we're not we're not we're not done. How about this one? Three Karn the Great Creator, four Greater Garganon, four Simeon Spirit Guide, four As Foretold, with the whole package of Ancestral Vision, Crashing Footfalls, Restore Balance, uh, Finale of Promise, and Serum Visions with Electrodominance, Is It Charm, and Lightning Bolt. So this is in we've now seen an As Foretold deck side by side with Big Blue Tron. Side by side with basically Black Planeswalker control. And what was the fourth one? <laughs> I've already forgotten. Uh, I. Oh, the Bant yeah, the one. The Bant Planeswalkers. Bant one. No, the Bant Planeswalkers with Teferi uh, and the uh, Vizier Remedies Devoted Druid. That's four utterly different lists. So I think not holding Card in the Great Creator in your MTG Finance portfolio just has to be wrong. I, I don't care if it's going to take six months, 12 months, or 18 months. You are going to make money on this card. It, it, with how popular it is, it is hard to imagine this being a losing proposition if he stays legal. Fifth list. This one is Chandra Flamecaller to Chandra Torture Defiance. Again, for Karn the Great Creator. But this is with basically green, red ramp value on the back of Blood Moon. So Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawls again, four Blood Moons main, there's a Liquid Metal Coating main and a Trinisphere main, two Glorybringer, <laughs> standard beater from Almond Kept Block, 
two Inferno Titan, four Tireless Tracker, four Pillage, and a Stone Rain. So this is like green, red, land destruction, land denial with a bunch of Planeswalkers. I have to imagine that ultimately the best shell for Karn is probably Tron, just because you can put him in, you can play him and cast, uh, whatchamacallit, the artifact uh, in one turn with four lands. Like you have Tron and an extra tower and you can just go. You can you can uh, make the argument that the Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl nonsense does the same kind of ramping, but is more exposed to uh, right. interaction. Yeah, it's easier to break that up. I, it's, I, I would imagine it settles into Tron most comfortably, but obviously the field is wide open for this to work because people are succeeding it regardless. It's it's a, it almost feels like modern is the sub game of modern has become a, a Karn. Who, who can Karn better? Sure. I mean, the sixth list, and this is relevant uh, to point out, not only because, it, again, four copies of Karn, but this is the Surge node list. So four Karn the Great Creator, four Core Tapper, for Astral Cornucopia, for Chalice of the Void, both artifacts that are interesting to put additional counters onto. Three, Ensnaring Bridge, for Everflowing Chalice, another card that likes to have extra counters on it. For Mishra's Bobble, for Mox Opal, for Mystic Forge, for Surge Node. That's, that is a deck. I, I, that, <laughs> there's just, there's so many different ways you can go with him. It's really, it's, it's deck agnostic, basically. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I, and you yeah. know, it, it really speaks to the power level because honestly, I think most of these decks are bad, I, but Karn is just good enough that it doesn't really matter. Or, or the, the dynamics exist in modern for all of these decks to be playable in the right hands if you get the right matchups, and Karn provides a nice, foundational, reliably good portion of the deck. And though some of these are probably going to play it, are going to disappear entirely from the landscape, some of these are not. And when you have a card that shows up in this many different lists, it only takes one or two of them to have staying power for it to work out financially, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the argument could be made that Karn, Cre- Karn the Great Creator might be the most flexible and ubiquitous modern card of all time. Well, being colorless it, certainly helps. It's it's battling against, like, what, what are the top five cards in modern right now? Probably Path to Exile... Uh, let me see. Lightning bring Bolt, up this. Serum Visions, top five Most cards co- is usually those. Yeah, so Lightning Bolt, Leyline of the Void, which will probably uh, exit That's the top change. ten. Yeah, I would. I would change. Expect that to change. Faithless Looting obviously is the pillar of mm-hmm. the format that people debate the power level around. Path to Exile and Thoughtseize, Serum Visions, Fatal Push, Rest in Peace, Snapcaster Mage, and Opt. So. It hasn't broken through to that level yet, but in terms of most played cards in modern, Karn is now number 19. And I can't believe it's only that low or it's only that high. I mean, that's it is by far the highest card on the list that doesn't cost one mana. Yeah. I mean, Lightning Bolt, one. Layla into the Void, zero. Faithless Looting, one. Path, one. Thoughtseize, one. Serum Visions, one. Fatal Push, Rest in Peace, two. Snapcaster 2, but of course both of those are mega staples. Opt, Surgical Extraction, Manamorphose, Inquisition, Bloodgast, Ravenous Trap, Aether Vile, Force of Negation, and Noble Hierarch are the cards ahead of Karn. Karn is showing up in 11% of all decks on Magic Online that are reported by Goldfish, and it, when it's played, it is a 3.9 of. 
I I gotta tell you, I think I think my favorite pick is probably all art cards, just because I this card is just so nuts, and it's gonna be uh it's gonna be everywhere, and on top of that, it's everywhere. It's gonna stay being everywhere. And if they decide to run this back to the printers in some other product, you know, maybe a, a dual dock or something like that, the all art one is still going to look cool. People are still going to want that one. I think one of the interesting things is that if you're talking about the top four or five decks in modern, it does not appear in most of those. So it's not a Phoenix card. It's not a dredge card. It's not a humans card. Um, uh, what am I missing in that list? It's not a blue-white control card. Um, so it's not tier one. It's kind of all over the place in tier two to three. Yeah. And, I mean, really, that's probably uh, a uh, an outcome of no one having found the best Karn deck yet. It's not that Karn's not a tier one card. Or that he's not capable of being in a tier one deck. Is that he's so spread out, like it, he can't focus on one deck to make it tier one yet. And I think that as the as the format narrows and they figure out where he's supposed to go, he'll become that card. And, well, and also, not a blue white control card. Are you sure? Not that really. can't be right. How is no, that possible? I, the the blue white control decks are usually running some combination of Teferi's, Narset, um, Jace the Mind Sculptor. And then their suite of removal interaction counter spells. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen Karn shown up in some Bant Planeswalkers list that we saw a few weeks back, but I haven't seen that repeated very often. The, mm. But further to your point about not the best Karn list yet, the fact that it slots in so easily in so many different decks suggests that at some point there will be a tier one deck that's tier one over it, would, would be tier one without it, but likes to have it. And when yeah. it starts, when it starts, when it ends up in a list that is as ubiquitous as humans, that's when we're going to turn the corner on the card. That's when it's going to start to, the regular ones are going to push to 20 and the Japanese are going to push to 40 to 50. Well, that's what I, what happens all the time is there's some potent combo um, or, you know, combo, a combination of cards, you know, that's not necessarily a combo, you know, quote unquote, uh, and event, it just gets more and more streamlined, and then they figure out, oh, we can just take these two cards that are good together, strip away all the nonsense, and put them together, and it makes this other deck that's already potent even better. Um, it happened with Splinter Twin. It happened with, uh, like, Stoneforge and Jace back in Standard. It happened with Splinter Twin in two formats, actually. Like, And I know it's happened with other car- combos of that nature as well, so... Um, we're, we're, we're going to get there and what someone will figure out, like whether it's the dredge deck or the blue white control that's already, or is it Phoenix? Maybe is it Phoenix figures out how to build it into it? I don't know, but that's going to be, it's going to be a deck. So let's talk about Hogak, your pick for the week and some of the lists that are running that. So probably the most straightforward 5-0 list is one that is leaning on the, Crypt Breaker Zombies plan. It's got four Blood Gas, four Carrion Feeder, two Crypt Breaker, a Golgari Thug, four Gravecaller, four Hogak, four Insolent Neonate, three Stinkweed Imp, four Stitcher Supplier, and four Vengevine. So it's got, and four Faithless Looting, a Dark Blast, and two Lightning Axe. So it's got the Vengevine 
angle going on. It's got the stitcher supplier and insulin neonate to get relevant things in the graveyard. It's also got stinkweed imps that it can dredge to do that. Um, it's got a bunch of uh, recursive uh, zombies that were present in the earlier Hogak lists. And um, then it's got uh, like Dark Blast and Lightning Axes, m- minor amounts of interaction. Um, so that's one take on it. There's another one that adds in Seder Wayfinder as a four of and four prized amalgam. And then also runs Hedron Crab. So basically they're splashing blue for prized amalgam and the crab so that they can fill up the graveyard faster and pop things out faster. That one, uh, I, that one looks juicy. I like that one. Hadron Crab is a really powerful engine. You should never let Hadron Crab live. Seder's Wayfinder is is something else, but I guess it gives you, it draws you a land, and the other three cards in your graveyard are just so good there anyways, especially with Hogox in your deck. Um, I like this list too. And Prized Amalgam is whenever creature enters from the battle, creature enters a battlefield from your graveyard. So like Hogok, right? Like obviously Hogok. Uh, gives more ways to trigger that. That's, and grave that's, crawlers, etc. Right, which was already there. Now you've added this other vector. This other one, though, is similar. The one it's got a the main deck green. hex drinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This that is main, something. That, 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 that one of hex. That one of hex drinker is the kind of inclusion that always makes me wonder if the person is a mad genius that just so far above me in deck construction because I would never have thought that. The slot I was oscillating on at the end of this 60, this tight 60, was going to be whether there was a hex drinker or not. <laughs> this is two blood gas, one carrion feeder, one crypt breaker, three grave crawler, one hex drinker for, for Hogak. And then the innovation here is four Lotlith Troll, which had been talked about in earlier hot, uh, Hogak lists as a way to get relevant cards in the graveyard on time. And then two Seder Wayfinder. So between the Troll and the Wayfinder, six additional ways to put stuff in the graveyard on top of Stitcher's Supplier. So they're just trying to like, dump a ton of cards in there and then pop out their Venge Vines, pop out a Hogak, have the recursive zombies in play, and then they're running a disruptive suite that looks more like green-black rock-style stuff. Three Collective Brutality, which has some nice discard interactions. Four Inquisition of Kozlik, three Thoughtseize, and two Assassin's Trophy. So I really a little bit lo- more of an interactive list. Yeah, I really like the Collective Brutality there. Um... Because you're just, that's just, you're obviously escalating that pretty much all the way every time. That's so juicy. That's mm-hmm. so juicy. This other one, too, the next one down has, uh, you know, you've got the Blood Ghast, Hadron Crab, Hogak, you know, kind of core of creatures there. But it adds in um, Creeping Chill, which is uh, the one yep. that basically just lightning bolts your opponent and you gain three life uh, if it's put into your graveyard from your library. So we know that's a, a potent effect. Um, but then it, this keeps the alter dementia, which I think is the first list so far that we've seen that does that. But now you alter yourself a little. You're milling yourself, but also you alter yourself a couple times probably, which gets you these creeping chills for just 12 damage, I guess. Uh, and then you can either you can swing for lethal um, after you creeping chill them four times, or uh, you might put yourself in a position to mill them out too. Alter of dementia is just such an insane card. And it also, they get to use Narcomoeba effectively because they're using Alter. Because when they Alter themselves, Narcomoeba pops into play um, automatically. And then, mm-hmm. 
basically you get your amalgam back on the back of the Nark amoeba. So this is interesting because... And, and Nark amoeba is a birds of paradise because it casts your Hogak. This is different than what we saw with Karn, though, right? We see six or seven different lists experimenting with Karn. They are going in completely different directions. The, the debate there isn't whether which of those lists is the best Karn list, so much as whether or not their list is viable in the format. Some of those are just going to like fall off the evolutionary uh, trail and be left behind. This is a different situation. This, to me, looks like a bunch of people intent on a Hogak deck existing that are jostling to see which version of the deck is better. These are all essentially the same deck with slightly different card choices, right? Yeah, I could see, yeah, for the most part, I agree with that. I could see you ending on two lists. I think there could be like a more beat down centric version that doesn't play anything cute. Um, and is just trying to put a lot of graveyard fat on the table, and Hogak is one of the good cards that it plays to beat people up with. Then I think the other variant is the Altar of Dementia version, which pairs those two cards to great effect and plays more like a combo deck that occasionally punches people. Um, but, but overall, I agree that most are probably two Hogak decks, uh, whereas there are really the, the number of Karn decks is how many decks are viable in the format overall. So we haven't even talked about the most interesting Hogak list. How about the one with four Liliana of the Veil, four Bloodgast, four Cabal Therapist? The first card revealed for Modern Horizons hasn't shown up really anywhere. Here we have it. Three Hogak in the main, four Pack Rat. In the main, you can discard the stuff that you want to end up in your graveyard and make pack rats at the same time. Four Stitcher Supplier, a little bit of an interaction package. Two Inquisition of Kozlek, four Smallpox as one part of the discard engine. Four Thought Seize, and three Fatal Push. Mm, this is juicy. I like the Stitcher Supplier turn one, turn two... Cabal therapist people and then play another stitcher stitcher supplier that seems that seems fun that seems fun because the turn after things get nasty and then, and then you can cast hogak that turn actually i think right because you mill six cards and then you end with cabal therapist and a second stitcher in play which is eight mana and hogak seven yeah so and this is can, this uh, is basically the pox gast list or the yeah. pox gack list uh pretty interesting um I mean, I think the, the bottom line for me is is the following. Karn and Hogak are clearly powerful cards. <laughs> when you see the same card show up in a whole bunch of disparate lists, certainly type more tightly clustered, as we said, with Hogak, these cards are going to be around for a while. It, this mm-hmm. isn't like Crashing Footfalls, where either the As Foretold deck exists or it's probably not going to get there. This is, these cards are good, and people are going to figure out what the optimal version of the list is, and then try to figure out if it's a tier 2, tier 1.5, or tier 1 deck. I suspect that these decks are now tier 1.5 to tier 2, in almost all of the cases of the things we just discussed, but that doesn't mean that people aren't going to buy the cards. Keep in mind that one of the things people need to remember is that modern, the majority of the action in modern is FNM modern. It's not tournament modern. And so... People like, say, Daniel Fournier, when he comes on the show, he wants to play the tightest list that gives him the best chance of winning the tournament. But people like you and me, if we show up at a modern FNM, we just want to play the f- most fun deck we can possibly get our hands on. Oh, I did a lot of that. Let me tell you. My, uh, oh, God, what was it? Um, That Helix card, Spellweaver's Helix, Worldfire, and Flame Jab. Sure. Yeah, I played some fun decks. 
Yeah, and, and guys like Fournier are, are happy to get free wins from us <laughs> on your average Friday night, but there's still more more of us than there are of Fournier. Um, I went my, undefeated most point. weeks. Thank you very much. Oh, okay, well, aren't you fancy? Um, <laughs> typically, when I show up with Jank, it, it turns out as you, one would expect. A well, couple other interesting lists from the modern deckdom. There was a green stompy list that was way out of left field. Um, it was not even running much of a devotion theme, really. Uh, I think that it was, yeah, for Avatar of the Resolute. Most people are going to have to look up many of these cards. This is the 3-2 Reach Trample that when it come, enters the battlefield, you put a it gets a plus one, plus one counter for each other creature you control that already has a plus one, plus one counter on it. For Barkhide Troll, for Dryad Militant, for Experiment 1, for Hex Drinker, two Scavenging Ooze, four Steel Leaf Champion, four Strangle Root Geist, four Aspect of Hydra, two Dismember, two Vines of Vastwood, four Ranker. Explain to me how this list does not have a shri- Nykthos Shrine to Nyx in here. No one is going to know what any of these cards do. Like, if you're running Hex Drinkers and you're leveling up, don't you want Nykthos? I mean, he's only got 18 lands, and that does make colorless mana. But he's running treetop villages, so clearly he's not afraid of having enters the battlefield tapped effects. Yeah, but... I mean, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong i'm just looking at i'm trying to figure out his thinking is probably that he wants every land in his deck to make green mana because the green requirements are so tight that any land that doesn't make green is essentially not a land um but it's possible he's supposed to go to 19 or 20 land and slot nykthos in because this is although then again there isn't really a lot of card draw here so he can't go you really have very little I, I, I think this is the kind of deck you... When people say, look at the deck dumps with suspicion, this is the kind of deck they're telling you oh, to be yeah. suspicious of. Yeah. Uh, here's another one, but my suspicion is waning. And again, I'm starting to question the mad genius of it because we're seeing versions of this show up again and again in Vivo lists. This is another Niv-Mizzet Reborn five-color craziness list. This one is Ashiok Dream Render, Nissa Steward of Elements, Teferi Time Raveler, Renin Six, Four Birds of Paradise, A Huntmaster of the Fells, an Ice Fang Quaddle, Three Niv- Niv-Mizzet Reborn, One Tolsmere Friend of Wolves, Three Bring to Light, One Castigate, One Dead of Winter, One Dreadbore, Two Glittering Wish, A Thought Erasure, An Abrupt Decay, Two Assassin's Trophy, Two Is It Charm, A Coligan's Command, Three Lightning Helix, A Tyrant's Scorn, and four Arkham's Astrolab and one Detention Sphere. Keep in mind that with Nib and Mizzet Reborn, your motivation is to find as many different cards of differing color pairs as possible and throw them into your deck. And that is exactly I, what they have done here. I basically can't accept that these Nib Mizzet decks are anything other than fun ofs. Like, it's a fun of deck. Uh, I don't think that they're... People will keep playing them and they'll keep five owing, but there's just no way that these are like good because at the end of the day, Niv Mizza is still a five mana six six flyer with that draws you a couple cards. Like that's not, it's not good enough. I, I guess the question here is whether Bring to Light is being underestimated for modern because it has been five owing in a variety of different configurations as well. So it's showing up in these Niv-Mizzet lists, but it also showed up in a really weird Planeswalkery list um, that was getting passed around that I think the uh, Arena Decklist podcast guys um, were retweeting earlier this week. And 
I mean, they have access to Glittering Wish to go get st- toolbox stuff out of their sideboard. Um, Niv-Mizzet just seems like such an ambitious card to try to cast in Modern, one of each color. But, I don't know. I mean, how many times is... I, I guess what we're really looking for is somebody needs to top eight something important with Niv before we're ever going to take it seriously, right? Yeah, essentially. And even that, I'm not sure. I mean, if... I mean, would you really believe it if Nifmizit top aided a whatchamacallit? Not the first GP. time. Like, not yeah, the even that's time. not yeah, even that's not good enough. You, you need like you need like Kai or LSV or Matt Nass or somebody to like wreck the pro tour with this thing, get into the top eight and finish second, and do a deck tech at some point explaining why everybody's been sleeping on the card. Yeah, it's gotta not only does it have to do well, it has to look good. Like it has to be proven on camera. Not just in the results page. There was also a classic blue-black fairies where the upgrade was Fairy Seer. That's the new 1-1 fairy that scries for two when it comes into play. I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I like this uh, this Risen Reef deck yeah. that popped up. That's just essentially a Bant, good cre- Bant Coco deck that shoves Risen Reef in. And the only elementals um, is... As far as I can tell, it's Risen Reef and uh, Voice of Resurgence, which is an elemental and makes elemental tokens. So that's a pretty tight Risen Reef package <laughs> because you but, only have himself and one other creature, but like clearly the value is still there. Um, but Voice Risen Reef is nasty. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. That's, that's a nice little package. And Voice is down really low, right? Isn't Voice of Resurgence once a $40, $50 card now down to like sub 10 or something? Oh, it's probably like $2. It was reprinted in Modern Masters 3, too. That's right, it was. So I'm I'm guessing it is nice and low. I mean, if it ever actually did something, it would take off in a hurry. I mean, you, I, I, I'm not convinced uh, that, you know, even if this deck top aided the GP, I would just be like, oh, that's cute. Uh, I don't think it's quite good enough for me to care. Um, it's... And I... I question whether Collected Company, Finale of Devastation type decks really want to be going straight value, which is all this deck does. This deck doesn't doesn't have a combo. It's just value. Yeah, which is really... That and you could dubious. slot one in here. Yeah, you could slot one in here. But then again, I mean, you know, the Ice, Ice Fang Coatle is is the Balfour Strix of Modern, and Balfour Strix decks in Legacy didn't have combos. They were just value decks that denied their opponent enough to have but, their engine run um but i'm so assuming they I, had I wasteland know. to lean on right yeah they did they played wasteland and they played shardless agent and force uh yeah they probably played four four so like it was different right like it was a different format but the point was there was no two cards you could put together that just won the game um it's possible that modern needs that more than legacy does uh i'm not sure about that so oddly enough there was another crashing footfalls list here uh, it was coming at things from a different angle. This was a Dreadhorde Arcanist, four of, four Tarmogoyf, four Crashing Footfalls, four Serum Visions, two Traverse the Ilvenwald, four Lightning Bolt, four Stubborn Denial, four Thought Scour, three Vapor Snag, three Teamer Ascendancy. I'm willing yeah. to bet that most of our listeners can't tell us what that does. It is an enchantment for teamer colors. Creature you control, creatures you control have haste, and whenever a creature with power four or greater enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. So if you pull off a crashing footfalls with that in play, you get two four fours with trample and draw two cards. 
Do you notice, by the way, that Dread Horror Canis casts Crushing Footfalls? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you can, like, turn one, discard it, and then drop uh, the Dread Horror Arcanist. He doesn't have haste, right? No. If you get an attack off with Dread Horror Arcanist, you can cast your Footfalls, and that's all. That's a lot of fun stuff right there. It's a bit weird that this list doesn't have Faithless Looting, but is running four Tar Fire. Well, that's for Tarbogoyf, clearly. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess he's not that concerned about putting cards in the graveyard. I mean, he's got the stubborn den- or the thought scour as well. So it looks like he's not because you yeah. you do thought lose scour card is advantage. Filling that role. Yeah. Anyway, interesting for me to see footfalls lists that are outside of as foretold um, scenarios. Anyway. Lots of interesting modern decks. None of these decks we talked about feel like they are contenders for tier one, right? This is just a bunch of interesting stuff taking place below the level of the decks that are dominating the format still. Yeah, it's fun to look at, but like, is it Phoenix is still going to be the deck to be at the Pro Tour? Uh, I'm not actually expecting there to be... I don't, I'm not expecting that to, to be upset. I do think that, that the story of this coming Pro Tour that's a modern event is going to be is it phoenix is still the best deck in the format um the question it will really be it's it's people fighting for second place i think yeah if i had to if i had to line up that top eight in my mind i'd be thinking like mono red phoenix blue red phoenix two humans two dredge uh a hogak deck and something random yeah Yep. So, I, I mean, I always hope for something crazy, right? It's more fun for us. It's more, more fun for the viewers when something crazy shows up, and it's also more profitable if you're quick on the trigger. Uh, but I just don't think that that's, that's in the cards for this one. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because most players are just playing modern at their LGS or, you know, local level style events, uh, in which case, you know, the world is your oyster. Play whatever you want as long as it's a current deck. I also think that there's something to be said that there's been a culture shift in the last five years. I think that the advent of things like um, Against the Odds in the hands of Seth, um, Saffron Olive, and the imitators of that uh, presentation of rogue deck lists, um, a ton of the emergence of rogue deck list culture at the same time that Magic overall is de-emphasizing the role of the competitive community in Magic culture as a whole, um, leads me to a place where I feel like we are more in position now for cards that are played frequently in Tier 2 or 3 decks locally to matter. Because I think more players are open to the experience of playing a suboptimal deck just to play something novel and fun. Well, uh, that's that's a uh, that's insightful and really is telling because it doesn't even have to be that they don't that magic is necessarily de-emphasizing professional the professional circuit in the sense that like it matters less. I think of it more as uh, you can't play those events anymore. Like there are fewer places for players to play the competitive level events, so they really. I, I I think you're right. I'm just thinking like, wow, it matters less what the players are interested in more the fact that they just don't have those events to go to any longer. And that's shaping it too, because now if you want to play modern, like, oh, I guess there aren't like all these PPTQs and stuff to go to. I'll just, I just have to play Friday nights or, you know, whenever. Um, and so I'm going to play stuff that's amusing to me and not worry about beating the metagame. All I have to worry about is beating, you know, the two best players in my store any given week. 
All right, let's move on to our fourth segment. We're dragging this one out this week. Um, two Have things to cover, <laughs> one quick and one probably a little longer. Let's tackle the, uh, just talk about the M2020 foils for a second, because I'm not sure everybody uh, out there has wrapped their heads around this shift. They announced that with Magic 2020, uh, the foil drop rate in standard legal Magic packs is at a higher level. Um, and why that's interesting is that the foil prices for Magic 2020 don't seem like they have adjusted to that. In theory, there are significantly more foils out there than there were before, but foil pricing at the various rarities, Rare Mythic especially, seems pretty much on par with any other standard set. Um, do you think... So, okay, well, what do you think the cause of that is? Uh, I think there's... I think that vendors have priced the cards as they normally would. And one of the things that I think is uh, applying counter pressure. Well, there's two things. One is that I think that Magic 2020 being a summer core set is especially right on the heels of Modern Horizons and War of the Spark. And with Commander uh, 2019 forthcoming is rumored to be at a lower print run than most other standard sets. So there are less total cards printed versus, say, the fall set. Um, it's also true that the redemption period for uh, foil sets on Magic Online has been shrinking over the last couple of years. And I think it's down to, I think that window closes, I want to say, first week of September or something. Um, and as a result, the there's some counter pressure there as well, because what some vendors used to do to restock was simply cat purchase... Uh, the digital version of uh, standard sets and standard foils. And they would have a, because it's so much more attractive for them to get a predictable distribution. If they get one of everything, it's much easier to plan their inventory than cracking boxes and hoping to pull cards. So that factors in. But I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with the fall set, because my instinct says that if the drop rate is significantly higher, then... Fall set foils should take a long time to take off. Um, yeah, I, I'm on the boat too that uh, vendors are generally just selling cards. They're pricing the cards as they would have because there's no really reason for them not to at the outset. People will probably pay it because even though the supply has increased, like it might be a little hard for people to grok that. And they're used to paying these prices for foils, so they're not going to sound, sound that outrageous. I think where you'll likely to see the price changes due to the additional supply is not in the first few weeks, but in the first few months when there's just so many people going to market with the foil cards that the TCG player inventory just gets bogged down. And that's where it'll start to pull the prices down. So I don't think it's a week one or week two or even week four topic. I think it's a, you know, week eight or week 12 type of thing. Um, and I also agree that it'll probably be more pronounced in the fall. Um, you know, if they keep up with this, That'll certainly put a drag on it. Uh, you know, your tier one staple foils will probably still pull ahead, um, but not quite as hard, not quite as fast. And all the secondary foils will drag a lot harder. And to clarify the math, I think it's basically a doubling. Standard sets were yielding about six foils per box where like two of them would be uncommon and one of them would be rare and maybe you got lucky and pulled a uh, foil mythic rare. And now we're getting six foil commons, four foil uncommons, and two foil rares. 
Um, so basically double the number of foil rares in the market. And that should really matter on the bigger sets, like with the ones with large that are, you know, a fall set, fall standard set, especially. Yeah. Yeah. I fully expect so. Um, I mean, that's a, a good chunk of cards to be adding to the market. So, you know, again, you might not see it in the first couple of weeks, but, you know, two or three months later, uh, that supply is going to run deep. It's going to be real hard for those tier two, tier three EDH cards to to pull out. And my read on that is that 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 is Wizards recognizing that they can encourage people to crack packs a little more often and capture some of that value directly rather than letting the secondary market capture the value through the appreciation of foils earlier than you know may have been the case say five or ten years ago i think there has definitely been the presence of organized mtg finance in the marketplace over the last several years has certainly and and the popularity of the game as a whole working in tandem has seen things like say smothering tithe foils take off in a hurry way faster than they would have say five years ago um, because everybody realize, rec- you know, when there's a card that is recognized early as being strong, people don't see much reason to hold back. And at the old drop rates, there really just weren't that many smothering tithe foils that needed to be gobbled up before the price movement was apparent. If you double the number of smothering tithe foils, that might have taken six months instead of two. Yeah. A little harder to see those movements early on, yeah. Um, which is which I actually kind of like because that means if you're paying attention to the alternative data sources, like if you're looking at EDA Trek and saying, okay, smothering tithe is showing up over and over and over again, but the prices haven't really budged on TCG Player yet. But I know that the demand is there, and I'm going to have a little bit more time to get in on this rather than the, you know the, it just the inventory just getting emptied overnight and be like oh well okay like i couldn't even figure out if this was good before people just got ripped, bought it all up yeah all right final topic of the week i threw out a twitter survey after doing a little bit of theory crafting um where i asked people what the price point would be from wizards Obviously, they don't do MSRP anymore, but it's still implied based on the wholesale cost that is presented to the dealers. Um, And of course, if they do something like Mythic Edition, they just declare the price, in which case it's completely obvious. Of the following product, imagine that they release a product called Omega. Um, People might be familiar with the phrase, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha, of course, being the first uh, magic set ever created. Imagine a product called Omega, and the premise of this product is as follows. It is packaged in the same, relatively close to the same packaging as an Alpha Sealed deck, except it says Omega on it. Um, The idea being that it is the lost half of the Alpha set. Um, But instead of it being an extremely wide power band from incredibly terrible cards right up to Black Lotus, it's all stuff that is targeted at being vintage playable in the same way that Modern Horizons was modern playable. So a ton of extremely powerful cards. And the idea here would be that people that are interested in playing, you know, vintage or old school are getting their hands on cards at the same power level as the Power 9 without being necessarily spins on them they are alternative cards completely different cards it's not meant to replace black lotus it's meant to be something that you can run alongside of or in lieu of and still have a great deck that could compete against somebody who's playing with the power nine so it doesn't infringe upon the reserve list because you're not trying to 
you know, find the sneakiest way to reprint Black Lotus. You're just printing extremely powerful cards. Um, you know, it could be something that, you know, taps for X mana of any color to equal, uh, X mana of any color equal to the number of cards that your opponent has in hand and it costs one mana or something. Um, so insanely powerful magic cards. And the idea here would be that the wizards would sell them directly. They would have a pre-order period for three months. You could connect that to a DCI number or not. So like it's in theory limited ones, one per household and some people will try to scam it, but it's an open ended. Um, <laughs> Are you kidding? Run. We both would. <laughs> of course we would. But what I'm saying is that like <laughs> it would stop things from getting ridiculously out of control because there would be um, a hassle premium for each additional name you want to associate because you have to get a real DCI number. And it could be, they could even say something like you have to have X number of planeswalker points associated with your account so that you have to, if you're going to make a fake person like your sister or whatever, then your sister actually has to show up at a tournament and play three or four tournaments before, like at least show up for three or four drafts before. But all of that's details. Like just assume that they worked that out. And there's a pre-order period and... So there's no like set print run. They're going to basically do it like a Kickstarter. If 150,000 people buy it, that's how many they're going to print. And they're only going to print it once, or let's say that they're going to print it once a year for, you know, two, three, four, five years, whatever. You can, this is all details that you can refine as you refine the concept. But the core premise remains the same. You're using old school packaging, but it sells uh, Omega on it. You're using old borders, which I think would be a pretty big deal for the communities being targeted and for the kind of people that are just looking for interesting magic collectibles and have never had the pleasure of opening those borders ever because they're, you know, they're 22 and not 42 like me. Um, And you line this up with like GP Vegas or whatever. So there's like some huge sealed deck tournament with Omega cards at GP Vegas. And you do that at, you know, four or five locations across the globe. And then between the pre-orders and those tournaments, that's it. That's the whole distribution for the year. What is the price point on those sealed decks? Uh, I mean, this. <laughs> I mean, this is a thought experiment. I feel like the price point of the decks is irrelevant. But uh, I mean, wizard. You know, if if it's if it's a specific sealed product. So let's see. What would you pay? What is a normal sealed sealed pool cost? It's like you're going to say three times six, about eighteen dollars, roughly. Um, you know, if you're playing an event, it's like 24, 25. If you're playing with a premium product like Modern Horizons or Modern Masters, where it's like eight or ten dollars a pack, you're looking at 45 to 60, maybe even 70 dollars a sealed pack. So you probably run higher than that. I mean, if you really want to make this premium, they probably shoot for double or double plus. So 150 to 200 would be my guess for this lands. They could sell it at 199 if it's just a sealed pack, um, which is still less than they charge for the Mythic Editions, but that's an entire draft set plus the eight Planeswalker cards. Um, I guess the question is, is this, something, is this a well Wizards would go to? And I think... The first thing that jumped out at me when you first started talking about this was this is I feel like this is a lot of power level equity that they lose very quickly. Um, and it reminds me of those the problem that uh, I think it was League of Legends or one of those MOPAs had where they ran this event 
and they like reduce all the cooldowns by 100%. They made all the players move 100% faster. They did double damage. So it was like League of Legends on crack, right? Like it was just ultra fast and people loved it. But what they found was that people were burning out on it and not coming back because it was such a... So intense. So intense that like the normal gameplay didn't feel good. Uh, and I wonder if there's concern in that regard with a product like this where like, oh, we just gave you a set with like 15 cards or 10 cards at power nine level. And now you have in, th- in in a month, you have to go play the new fall set where you would you're happy to get shock. Right. Like, I just wonder if it kind of burns people out a little bit. Hmm. I'm not sure I'm too concerned about that because I think it's a very unique event. Like you go, I think a, a, I think we could both agree that a lot of people would book Vegas if they knew this was going down. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'd get the entire old school magic crowd for whatever that's worth. And I think just a bunch of randos. Like I think you would just get a bunch of EDH modern uh, legacy players that would just like, it's a shot at pulling a Lotus and Let's say that those packs are 99 or 199, and I think you could pull it off with both. It's a much wider crowd if it's 99 than at 199. But let, let, let's just say for argument's sake, it's a $99 sealed, and that let's say that they have booster boxes of it, and they are priced at like $399 a box or something. So the highest booster box price we've ever seen. But if you compare it to, say, a Modern Horizons, this makes sense, because let's assume that it, they're using... Uh, modern rarity so there are mythics and the of the 15 mythics like roughly half of them are as good as the power nine maybe two-thirds of them and they are truly all-time great magic cards that the old school community will want to own instantly and i think there's some interesting dynamics here it doesn't wreck the reserve list it might actually reinforce the value of a, lot of, of a lot of the cards on the reserve list because it opens up slightly more potential for play. One set is probably not going to be enough to get a ton of players into those formats, but that's not really what they're trying to do anyway because as we've talked about many times, they really want people drafting, playing standard, playing modern, playing EDH. That's kind of the core of Magic's brand. But I think they'd be fine with, in the same way that they were okay with people fooling around with Battle Bond and Two-Headed Giant and conspiracy they're they're not scared to let us play some kind of rando format for a little while and then get back to the mainstream so i think the idea that you go to vegas in your in your geographic region there's probably only one gp you can attend where you get to maybe there's you know one main event and a few side events and maybe you can end up getting you know four hundred dollars worth of cards max and you can pre-order up to one box or two boxes per household of the booster of the booster packs and all of that goes down in a very tight period of time. And then they're on to the next prod- product and you wait three or four or five years for them to go back to that well. That all seems like, you know, I don't know that this is exactly how they would approach it. But it, what was interesting to me is it feels like a way of addressing the reserve, people that are concerned that reserve list prevents them from playing a certain kind of magic while selling a shit ton of new product. Because the thing about canceling the reserve list is that Wizards makes no immediate money off that unless they print into it, which has is such a can of worms. But if they print new amazing power level cards, that it there it's hard to imagine who the who will take issue, right? They're potentially opening up those formats a little. 
It's a super exciting short-term event. Doesn't really upset the apple cart for the other mainstream formats. And there's no way I wouldn't just max out on that. So they're going to capture, let's say I go to Vegas, I play in two or three events, that's 300 bucks minimum. And I buy, get the max booster boxes. They're going to capture over a thousand extra dollars from me that year, which of course they want to do. So that could be a 10, 15, $20 million magic project for them. There's, yeah, I mean, at this point, it feels like there's no shortage of products they could make that they would make, break money in hand over fist um, because people will show up and pay for it. It's more of a question of what uses the least of their resource capital and, and design space capital per dollar made. Um, so, you know, you think about like the mythic editions, they make three or $4 million, but it's all reprints. It costs them nothing from a game design perspective, like literal nothing, because all of those cards are already cards that exist. Your Omega, you eats up a good, eats up some amount of space. It's like modern horizons. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's a modern horizons. Uh, but it's a modern horizons that like you can't print very often, and that the demand for is semi shallow because it's not cards that people can generally play with outside of. It's clearly a very collector oriented product because where are you going to play these things? Well, um, one of the interesting questions is they're all, half of them are going to end up banned in EDH. Yeah, so, that's, that, that's the thing about EDH, right? How many of the cards become EDH super staples as opposed to being bannable? And if you print a bunch of things that are at the level of lotus soul ring mana vault mana crypt etc do you just get, get put edh in a position where they have to take a more aggressive stance against those because there's too much of that ridiculously fast mana and the whole format tilts in that direction mm-hmm. or is it it's, or is the format so resilient that it doesn't really matter um i mean well i mean they definitely ban cards so it's it's and, not so resilient that they don't care about that stuff uh, imagine what the equivalent of a Lotus and foil, <laughs> whatever the best card in Omega is the foil version of that. What do you think the max price on that is in the first year of release? Uh, I mean, it, it, without knowing the distribution without, without really picking a distribution, it's hard to say, right? I guess ultimately they, you know, they'd want to have, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Sorry. I just, I heard a crack on my, headphones um you know you'd have to imagine they would probably shoot to cap that at like what five thousand copies maybe ten thousand copies to which is consistent ma- with what we've seen with other premium product releases yeah and maybe even lower if you're trying to approximate you know alpha sure and that chase you know maybe they say okay there's only we know for a fact that we only printed a thousand foil copies of whatever the new lotus is um, to kind of help drive that. I, yeah, I mean, that price is pretty nuts. And, um, and at that MSRP, even at 99 you can afford to print masterpieces into that set if you want to. Like, you can have foil, you can have Lotus, foil Lotus, and masterpiece Lotus all possible at different differing drop rates, right? And people are going to go crazy trying to track those down. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think they would be better served... When I think about this, I feel like rather than try and print one product that makes them all this money that they have to spend a lot of design space on and a fair bit of effort, if they wouldn't be better 
setting up another priceless treasures, but making it a little bit more permanent. So for those who don't remember, during the first run of Zendikar, um, the hook line was something like Dangerous Adventures, Priceless Treasures, or whatever. But the key, the point was that they used the phrase Priceless Treasures. And they didn't tell anybody, but on pre-release weekend, if you were extraordinarily lucky, you would crack a pack and find... An, an old magic card like, like candelabra, candelabra. Tons, yeah 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 and there were a couple power floating around so it happened so wizards had seeded very very few packs with these extraordinarily valuable cards and people and it was it was the priceless treasures and people loved it um it was only the original run of zendikar and it drove prices of, of the original print run of zendikar through the roof and it would be interesting to see them do a cross between that and the way they handled it in magic online and say hey here are nine, the new power nine. You cannot buy these cards. We are going to seed them mm. rarely and slowly in packs over the course of years. Mm. So it's not one time release. It's just every time you open a pack of magic, you might find a new power nine. And then it just sort of raises the level on every sealed product. And frankly, they could put them in everything, right? Not just the standard sets. They could be every time you open a sealed package of magic cards, no matter what's in there, you might find one. So I feel like that adds that like ultra sense of chase to the packs um, and it's just always there, right? Like it's that always that excitement of being able to open it. That to me sounds a little more fun. And it also, and it also makes the community way happier because they're more excited to go open packs and they don't feel like the finance community can screw them because if they made this, the Omega product, as you've talked about, obviously you and I, and people like us are going to go after as much of it as we can. It's just the way it's going to work. And people are going to get really damn angry that they can't get their hands out and the prices are astronomical. But if we can't do that, if that venue does not exist for us to do that, well, it's open to everybody. Yeah, there's definitely something there. Like if they announced the project um, the way you described it, or it was something like the sealed deck events still take place, but there are no booster boxes. The only other way you're going to get access to Omega is this is a three-year project. It's going to be up here in every standard set. The drop rate for Omega Mythics uh, is going to be like one per case or something, or or one every two cases, something approximating uh, a little, maybe a little worse than the masterpieces were, uh, maybe like twice or th- or three times more rare. But maybe Omega rares tend to show up like twice per case. And so there's a smattering of Omega cards being being distributed in these packs. Now, they do have problems generally with putting cards in packs you can't play with in your draft event and so forth. So there's a little bit of that to work through. But I feel like elements of what we're discussing here are going to end up being a product. Can we agree that they, they are strongly motivated, both from the angle of pursuing premium products on a regular basis and providing some kind of an answer to the reserve list at some point? to attempt some project like this. Well, I, I think that Wizards has no interest in even trying to preempt the reserve list. I don't think they give a shit at all. I do think that they are still missing at least one tier of premium product that they're not going after. Um, the Mythic Editions and things like that are definitely going after a band of premium product. But I think there's a step above that that they can't capitalize on at the moment. You know, you're... 
Yeah, right. That they haven't yet, but they they might be looking for a way in because Wizards has no real product that they can sell you that's worth a couple thousand dollars. Um, but they might be looking for that way in. Um, so I don't doubt that. Uh, I and I also at the same time, if you're trying to make either Las Vegas or Hascon be like your kind of big premier event, I do like the idea of a product that is only available at that event. Um, and I think. I, you know, off the top of my head, I kind of like the idea of saying, okay, we're, we made this product. Uh, it is available at Vegas and it is only available at Vegas. That is the only place you can buy this product. You cannot pre-order online and you cannot buy it in your local store. You have to show up and sit in a chair to buy it at the store. And then we will slowly seed these cards in every booster pack for the next five years. And the event at Vegas has like higher drop rates or something like that, right? Like they've, they've made it so it's worth going there. If, if you were on the fence, you really want to go because this is your chance to get the real packs. Um, and then, you know, you might find them, might find them out in, out in the future. Well, I also think like, the draft thing, just one last thought, I also think the draft thing is irrelevant because they you can play with inventions and drafts and that's fine. Like at a pro tour, they just take them out at your local store. Yeah. If someone's lucky enough to open black Lotus too, like fine, you win. Like, <laughs> you still have to draw it anyways, right? You still have to draw the damn card. So like one draft in a 2000 is fine. Yeah. Debatable. You know, what's interesting picture the set, the market for uh, enter event drop with a sealed deck on the premise of what the sealed decks are going to be worth down the road. Yeah, I mean, really, they could limit you. They could say, like, you, your DCI can only be registered once per this weekend, and we are doing driver's license checks on registration. It's, it's onerous, but it, it's interesting. Some some percentage of people are... You're still going to have to let people drop with their product if they want to. But it's going to be... They, it would be interesting to see what percentage of those decks would just be held. Like, what, they, what it, it might have the highest drop rate of any tournament in history simply they on can, the basis that 30 percent of the people decide you know what my 99 dollars deck is going to be worth 400 next year and i'm just going to hold this they can drop but they can't re-register like you could only register for one event that weekend for that that has this product this like well, ultra there, premium product in theory there could be only one event that weekend who knows yeah. Anyway, you I, know, you you can you, you can even chase this even further down the rabbit hole and make it a you <laughs> you can make it a black tie event like this is it like nine o'clock Saturday night formal dress required. It requires an entry fee beyond the card price. Like you could really even like dress it up and, and turn it into more than just a, a magic. Because, event. Because, because people won't accuse this event of being elitist enough as is at a 99 or $199 price point. I mean, but at this point you're, you're not, you're not making it look like it's for, for the everyday magic player, but then letting them get angry that it's too expensive. You are signaling from the get go. This is a ultra premium experience that you have to pay for. And it is not for everybody. They, they should, uh, if they did it, there should definitely be that experience that is a good magic party. It's at least semi-formal. There is good food and you're playing on felt tables and it's nice. There's yeah. never been a magic event like that in, in no. 25 years. And it would be nice to have a very premium magic event, like a bespoke poker game style event just once as a one-time thing. And yeah, and make you know make the price of it the same but maybe make it a lot like it's not more expensive to do it but there's a lottery to get into it so it's like it's a really nice bonus for some people that luck into it it's fun to think about i can't imagine that this is profitable in any way shape or form uh 
But I, uh, it is fun to think about. I mean, that's a whole different... I, I could debate that point alone for a while. But let's cap it for now. Very interested to see what the pro traders come up with in the Discord once they've listened to all this. Um, very curious to see what people's ideas are for a product like Omega and how you would make that work for Wizards of the Coast. Um, <laughs> think we can put this one to bed. Uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Oh, God, what? Uh, okay, two, 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 eighteen, two, seventeen, two hours, seventeen minutes as of uh, this timestamp. So this isn't as bad as I thought it might be. Um, I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter, Wizard Bumpin, B U M P I N. I write every Monday doing the Watchtower series over MTG Price. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. I would also like to remind our listeners to check with the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. If you want to check that out, feel free to hit me up uh, on Twitter or via email through mtgprice.com. We can usually set up some kind of a demo for you, and no one ever comes back from that without spending some money. Yep. Uh, Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of collectibles use the promo code finance5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save five percent off your order and support this podcast james who is our credit winner this week uh mimo ruto mimo roto we will track you down in the pro trader discord and provide you with your 25 dollar gift certificate to cool stuff inc spend big over there so our lovely sponsor keeps providing the juice Oh, you know what we could do is uh, if your name in Discord isn't pronounceable on the first shot, then you're not eligible. And then everyone will have names that are easy to deal with. Um, (laughs) All right. I enjoyed our conversation here. And it sounds like we might have a good one in the chamber for next week's discussion as well. We'll see what's happening in the news and magic and if we have room for it. But uh, again, I enjoyed episode 177. Uh, Thanks for your time, James. And I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm